Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifsdecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by our former co-host in exile, returned on a mission of revenge, Ollie Brady. Ollie, welcome back. It's great to be back, Sarah. I feel like it's not too long since I've been on the podcast before. and Also true. Yeah, now it's just like, uh, you know, I mean, now they just think that, you know, I just get to like, you know, pull you into the podcast whenever I want. And that's definitely not true, of course. Yeah, well, uh, you can, like, I'm always available, but, you know. I mean, you told me to watch this show, in fact. Oh, yeah, I know. I'm trying to pretend I'm playing the victim. <laughs> So speaking of, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself in case they don't know who you are, if there's this is maybe the first episode they're listening to, and about why you wanted to talk about this particular piece of media, which you made me watch, which was fine. I also enjoyed it. So um, my name's Oliver, and I'm friends with Sarah and have been for a long time. Um, got too long now at this stage. And uh, I was the original co-host. Uh, this has always been Sarah's podcast. Uh, and I made sure and insisted on this that beforehand. I was like, Sarah, this is your podcast. I'm just a co-host. And I'm perfectly happy being a co-host. And then after the first 20 or so episodes, I just got super busy and couldn't do it anymore. And now I'm like sneaking my way back in, coming in like two or three times a year, um, getting that Brady bump. Um, I'm a, a physics guy and uh, I like doing loads of physics and sci-fi and stuff and uh, in my spare time I love like reading fantasy books and watching fantasy tv shows and movies and stuff and that's where uh, I came across this wonderful thing called The Legend of Vox Machina which uh, Sarah yes. uh, you speak Latin which I obviously do not what does Vox Machina mean? Machine voice? It's because <laughs> all of the actors in it are professional voice actors and that is their main job so some of them do other random acting bits but that's why they decided to call their group the vox machina because they are machine mm -hmm. voices that's that's what they provide um and this is based on a dungeons and dragons campaign before we actually talk about creating yes. the role and all this stuff sarah have you ever played dungeons and dragons i actually haven't played dungeons and dragons i seem like the type who should have played dungeons and dragons but just have never actually played dungeons and dragons just never I, got around to getting in on a campaign with anybody. I'm genuinely shocked by that. I, I, I just really did expect that you would have said yes. The problem is that I am a nerd, but like you have to be a nerd with friends to do Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, I think what you're really saying there is you're too cool to have done it. Um, <laughs> So, no, I'm saying I'm saying I'm in fact less cool than all the other nerds. I don't even have friends who invite me to play D and D, like all, um, like the other nerds. I I know there's a Green Knight game. Yes, that uh, people suggested uh, you might play someday. So hopefully you get into that. I also yeah. have never played traditional Dungeons and Dragons. Really, I have uh, guested on Megan Griffin's podcast. Uh, once upon a monster of the week but that's not technically dungeons and dragons it's something called monster of the week it's like a different game which is system. a different kind of role-playing game right yeah um but yeah that was a lot of fun um and i i i would genuinely like to do it at some stage it's just you know as you said i've never really had that group of friends and it's not anywhere near as popular in ireland as it is 
uh, over there at the States. But yeah, maybe someday we'll yeah. do it. Maybe we'll get some of the listeners in and we'll, we'll play a quick one-shot campaign yeah. or something. Yeah. No, and I've actually been talking about like getting into it at some point uh, since I uh, have a, a local friend, also Nicole, who, of course, listeners will know is on the Green Knight episode. Uh, she was actually talking about doing like a D&D uh, like one-off campaign thing for her birthday this year. So Ooh, if, uh, if that works fancy. out, maybe I'll, I'll get, into, get into playing D&D for the first time. Yeah, that sounds absolutely Yeah, because you can hire a DM locally who will like do this for you for an event. So That's so cool. Yeah. Like somebody who's actually knows what they're doing and Yeah. That's way more awesome than Yeah. Like I was thinking like if we were gonna do the Green Knight one that one of the listeners would, you know, volunteer to be the DM and do all this stuff. But imagine being able to hire somebody who's like professional right? at it. Yeah. 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 So so maybe, maybe I will in the near future be playing D&D, but thus far I have in fact never played D&D. And the reason this is relevant is because The Legend of Vox Machina is based on a live streamed D&D campaign that's done by yes. these voice actors. Um, so that show is called Critical Role. I, I don't, have you ever listened to it, sir? I haven't, no. After this, I'm kind of interested in it, though I I think at first I thought it was a podcast, and I was like, cool, start it. And then I was like, oh, it's like, <laughs> it's a video. You have to sit down and watch it, I guess, as opposed to having a thing just on in the background. You can get the podcast version. Oh, good. Okay. Um, in that case, I will I will definitely check it out then in the not-too-distant future. That was my introduction to it, was through the podcast, where... Okay. I was listening to the Adventure Zone, something that both of us have in common. I know you yes. really enjoyed it. And uh, not to have the populist opinion, but I felt like the second arc uh, after Balance wasn't as good as the first arc. So I, I was looking for that. something to replace my uh, D&D on a Thursday uh, kick. So I went looking and I think I just typed into Google best uh dungeons and dragons podcast mm-hmm. i will say for people listening and, and for sarah it is a massive commitment because to cover the first season the first arc if we want to call it or the first campaign i suppose so the first which from the what i understand right is these characters and at some point they switch to a different set of characters yes so campaign one is 115 episodes damn and that's 115 episodes but it's not like the adventure zone where it's edited down to 25 minutes 35 minutes an hour they're all three and a half hours oh my god yeah so you're that talking, makes like chuck look short yes so it's a huge commitment to to listen to the whole thing but it's legitimately wonderful and a lot of the reasons right. that it's wonderful is down to the cast and sarah's gonna talk us through who's in the cast Yes. So, uh, so these are obviously people who are, you know, involved in this series. I, so are they in other things as voice actors? Cause I will say I did, I just kind of like did not otherwise look them up. They are in tons of stuff in voice actors okay. or vice, vice, uh, as voice actors. They are, they do a lot of video game related stuff. Okay. And they do a lot of the English dubs of animes. Okay. Cool. 
So I don't know if I necessarily would have heard them in anything, but uh, they were certainly excellent in this. So Laura Bailey as Vexalia or Vex Vessar, Tellies and Jaffe as Percy Fredrickson von Musselklasovsky de Rollo III, a name which I cracked the fuck up when I found out that was in fact his full name. It's a uh, lot of it's a lot of a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's a whole lot of name. Also, Taliesin is a cool name. It is a cool name. Yeah. 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 Ashley Johnson as Pike Trickfoot. Liam O'Brien as Vaxildon or Vax Vesser. Marisha Ray as Keyleth of the Air Ashari. Sam Regal as Scanlan Shorthalt. Travis Willingham as Grog Grog Strongjaw. That is harder to say than I anticipated. (laughs) And uh, the final person that I'll mention in this category of people who are part of the original Critical Role team is Matthew Mercer, who uh, was the DM. And so he obviously, I assume, must play a bunch of the, pretty much all, I assume, of the NPCs in the original series. And in the show, it plays uh, the, a number of characters, but I would say most prominently the character who ends up being our kind of main villain, Lord Silas Briarwood, or one of our main villains. Um, one thing I will say is, Laura Bailey is married mm-hmm. to Travis Willingham. So he plays Str- Grog and she plays Vex. And uh, I sent Sarah a picture of the two of them. What an incredibly attractive set of right? people who... Are yeah. voice actors. And I don't mean this like that sounds like, but like they couldn't get jobs as regular actors. They're like tens, the two of them. You're like, what the hell is this? Yeah, I think I told you at the time that like as a bi woman, I feel like there's like relatively few couples that you look at and you're like, I'm on board with like everything happening here. They are one of those couples. And they just seem like such nice people and big nerdy, geeky people who get on with each other, but you're still there going, damn, they're fine. Like, what the hell? Oh, yeah, they are and- a beautiful, beautiful couple. And Matthew Mercer, who's a long-haired, geeky-looking dude, he's married to uh, Marisha Ray, so she play he she plays Keith. Okay. Um, and then the other three are like best buddies, like so Sam, Liam, yeah. and Talisa have been best buddies for a long, long time. So like they're a really close knit group of people who get together. Yeah. So, th- so this is just set in the background. Is there? Are, like, you, you might hear me listening a bit more just because in this particular instance, I know more about Critical Role than Sarah does. So yes. I hope it doesn't feel like I'm talking over Sarah and I, I'll try it's the same thing with the Wheel of Time episode I will try to calm my enthusiasm down uh, you know more about Critical Role and eventually I will demonstrate that I know more about random things that I looked up about medieval ideas of the undead we each have she, our skills <laughs> you absolutely know more about random ideas you don't you don't have to you don't have to tell me twice but let's let's talk about some of the guests on the show. We ha- we haven't really yes. talked much about Vox Mackin yet, but we will in yes. a minute. But let's talk so, about who we're the yeah. Guests, so we'll just say a couple guests. of the yeah the other the other guests this season because they you know they got some additional great people in. So uh, they're they're in this uh, kingdom political entity called Taldore, and on the Taldore Council uh, includes uh, Stephanie Beatriz from Brooklyn Nine Nine as Lady Kima of Vord. And Indira Varma, who we all know from Game of Thrones as uh, Lady Alora. So we've got a couple of great people there. You say we all know her from Game of Thrones. But I know her from the fact that she plays a character on Luther. And uh, your dad described you once as being very like her. My dad? Yeah, that's what you told me. (laughs) I don't remember this. Yeah, I, I remember you saying to me, because <laughs> I don't think you had seen Luther. 
And, I still haven't seen Luther. And he said to you that basically you remind her of Indira Varma um, in, in that show. And she is a sociopath <laughs> like she's a literal <laughs> nut job and i still picture this in my head every time i i can't even remember i, I it might even be when we met in dublin when your dad was there but i have this burned into my memory that your dad was like but she looks a bit like sarah and it's like she does but but she's also playing a she's crazy a woman i mean if you look at my passport photos you know the the sociopath vibe is there <laughs> they don't you smile it's but not she's my a, fault I only have two expressions. She's a great actress and she does a fantastic yes. version uh, or a fantastic voice um, performance in this. Yes. And uh, then we also have uh, a couple of good people that get brought in as villains. So the villain in the kind of two episodes sort of introductory kind of mini arc is General Krieg, who turns out to secretly be a dragon. And that is David Tennant. Yeah. And... Yeah. General Krieg is a really big guy. Uh, yes. Playing David Tennant. And then you've got Rory McCann here again, obviously. Good old Rory uh, McCann. He's in everything we watch. And he plays Duke Vedmere. And I just think it's funny that Rory McCann is playing a not particularly large, gigantic man. And David he's Tennant. He's pretty large. He's, pl- he's not as big as Krieg. I guess. I guess you don't really see them together. I'm not sure. I feel like I, I envision them both as large gentlemen. Krieg is huge, though, in the show. I suppose yeah. he's, a, he's a secret dragon. He's um, a dragon, so. Yeah. But he's good. Um, and Venmeyer is, I guess, just a dude. He's just large, but he is just a dude, I think. Yeah, he's just a regular dude. He's Like, he doesn't corrupted. actually seem to have many special abilities that I noticed. Except having Rory McCann's voice, which is a special ability well, yeah. in itself. Of course. Uh, also, Stephen Root, uh, another True Blood alum as uh, Professor Anders. Uh, so he's, you know, a great American character actor Steve, in general. Stephen and has, Root uh, plays a vampire on True Blood. He does. Yeah, he's, um, it's just like really, I actually find it really interesting because I feel like a lot of True Blood is this very like vampires are super sexy, but then it's also like vampires are the people who they were in life, right? Like they, if you, if you look like Stephen Root, you know, no offense to Stephen Root, right? Like he's, you know, he's a character actor. He's not like a conventionally gorgeous man. And, but you know, the idea is like, if you look like just a kind of normal middle-aged guy and you got turned into a vampire, like you're still a normal looking middle-aged guy. And, and I actually really like his character because like, it's kind of like, he's kind of sad in a way, right? Like, cause he like, I think kind of thought that being a vampire would mean he'd have this like, kind of like sex appeal suddenly. And yeah, then he like, he's looking kind of doesn't, he still is Skarsgård and Manganello, like, and he's going, why don't, why am I like that? Oh, well, Manganello is a werewolf, to be fair. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> of course. But he does have to compete with Alexander Skarsgård, so... Uh, we also have, uh, from Lord of the Rings, Dominic Monaghan as uh, Archie, who is uh, one of the rebel leaders. So Dominic Monaghan, of course, is Mary. I always mix up which is Mary and which is Pippin. Uh, but yes, listening. he is Mary. Uh, and uh, we also have as Keeper Yenin, so another uh, participant in the resistance that we'll be getting into in our next kind of big, in the other kind of big arc of the season. Uh, we have Gina Torres, who I've been seeing a lot recently because I am undergoing a very uh, slow rewatch of Angel and Buffy with the podcasts uh, Buffering the Vampire Slayer and Angel on Top. 
And yeah. Angel on Top is currently in season four, where uh, Gina Torres uh, now has a major role. Um, I know her from uh, Firefly. And uh, I think I watched the season of Suits. She's like the, the boss lady in Suits. Mm. She's in Hannibal too, actually. Ooh, the show. Hannibal. I, I still yeah. have not watched Hannibal. Oh my god, have we not discussed this? You have to watch Hannibal. You, you've told me this many times. And uh, every single time I just go, all I see is like really delicious food. And I don't want to be sitting there going, yeah. oh my god, I want to eat that guy's shins. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, it, it's, it's, I think it's one of the things that's truly brilliant about the show is that you watch it and you're like, that looks really good. Those are the wonderful characters yes. um, or actors that are, are performing. And every single one of them does a great job. There's none of the voices feel phoned in. None of them feel no. underperformed. Nobody, none of them feel like they're chewing scenery for the sake of it. And David Tennant, no. uh, I know it's like dangerous to say anything even slightly negative about David Tennant because he's like the internet's most beloved man. But David Tennant can overact sometimes. And uh, he doesn't do it in this. He's, he puts in a, a very, I would almost say, restrained performance for most of it. Yeah. He's just, yeah. like, good. Um, but, yeah. I mean, because it's also a performance, like, we'll, we'll get into this when we get into it, but, like, he's a character who, like, you don't realize at first that he's the villain, right? And there's a re- big reveal of that. Yeah. Um, and I think, and, like, it actually genuinely, to me, came off as a surprise. But uh, that should be a good lead-in to, I think, our next uh, segment where we talk through what, what happens in the series, which, uh, what is that segment called? It's called the Enumeratio, which means recap. Yes, more or less, in Latin. <laughs> so basically, the the structure, I'll just say briefly, of the show this season is that there are 12 episodes, and basically there's two episodes, the first two episodes are their own, I would say, fairly kind of self-contained arc, and then we have, and then the last 10 episodes are then a kind of separate arc, uh, so that uh, so that basically there's kind of two main storylines, but that the first, as I said, is this kind of very sort of self-contained kind of short introduction that gets you, that has you just kind of get to know the characters, and then we have this other story, which I believe the story that is those like ten last ten episodes is I think one of the like first big campaigns of yeah critical so, role. So in in the campaign, campaign one, which is the Vox Machina campaign, um effectively we start with the group forming together and and like as typical D D things do. Right. Um, this starts with them well after being formed, right? So they're all mm-hmm. together. And that's because at the beginning Ashley Johnson was busy making a video game so she wasn't she wasn't there when they started doing the recording sessions she shows up in like the fifth or sixth episode and her character is introduced like as they're going looking for grog and her character pike is one of grog's like best friends from childhood which is why i know later on you talk about how they're like a really sweet relationship and they are they're lovely um and that's when things start to kick off and as far as i can remember and it's been a while since i looked this up but the Black Woods, or the Briar Woods, sorry, the Black Woods, the Briar Woods are some, something like the 21st episode to the 35th episode, something like that. Like okay. so, so the last 10 episodes cover effectively 14 or 15 episodes. But because it's a proper, they like they record everything that gets done. Mm-hmm. So there are episodes of Critical Role when you're listening to it on a podcast or you're watching it on YouTube where they're literally just going around shopping and like, 
uh, I need to go pick up armor and um, oh, I need to level up my characters and they talk through all the leveling up stuff that they do. And it gets really nerdy, but also because they're always doing it in character, it's always fantastic. I think mm-hmm. Rog would do this, you know, and it's 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 just great to watch that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like it's a lot, but you, you can find guides on long line which will tell you. Um, so if you want to get the Briarwood Act, you need to listen to episode 21, 27, mm-hmm. 28, and then 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, like that, right? So we'll skip yeah. out the individual little things. Um, and I'll also add, I mean, this is probably obvious, but uh, for anybody who has not yet watched the show, the show very ob- unsurprisingly, I would say, edits out the vast majority of that yeah. sort of stuff. Uh, you know, it kind of starts them already knowing each other, but also I would say it cuts out the like leveling up stuff. It has a scene or two that involves shopping, but I, but like, you know, it's kept relatively minimal. So very much, I'd say, you're kind of getting down to the sort of bare bones story arc uh, in the show as opposed to the podcast. Yeah, exactly. So in in the first episode, for example, they go to Gilmore to buy stuff. Um, uh, the, so, you know, the, the guy who... Love that dude. Yeah, he's class, right? And they go to visit him. That would be an hour of them improving right. as you're listening to an episode. But obviously... They know what they bought. They know what they were looking for. They know what information they got. They cut it down into a three-minute scene in the cartoon. Right. Right. And it's fantastic. Um, and also, absolutely, I'm, like, I'm not saying certain McElroy brothers were clearly um, fans of Critical Role, but you can't tell me that a certain Deals Warlock doesn't bear a more than passing resemblance to uh, Gilmore in this. Fair. Fair. So, yeah, so we start out, right, with the, uh, we've got this mercenary group, Vox Machina, who are intensely broke. Like, we meet them basically, like, they get into a bar fight. The bartender finally, or the bar owner is finally like, y'all need to pay for this shit. And they're like, about that, no, we do not have that money and get kicked out. And they then, because of that and their search for funds, end up uh, advertising their services to Sovereign Uriel and the Council of Taldore, who are looking for some mercenaries to deal with a mysterious creature who's been killing a bunch of people. And uh, they do ultimately entrust this task to Vox Machina, but I would say most of them are rather skeptical because Vox Machina gives the impression of being somewhat unserious and perhaps not the most competent, and already there have been, like, multiple mercenary groups that have been killed attempting this task. The The first scene of the show is a classic D&D group with archetypal characters just getting destroyed by the dragon yes. <laughs> like there's basically a gand out there there's an aragon there there is um if anybody is a dungeons and dragons character there's a, a gold moon in that group like that now again that's proper nerdy shit sarah i'm not even gonna explain it there's a tannis half elf in that group uh character standing and they all get absolutely destroyed brutally slaughtered right yeah, which is uh, which is a great like takedown, of course, of the the sort of traditional um, you know badass D and D party uh, as we then kind of move into the you know seemingly much less impressive but obviously ultimately successful because there are heroes of uh, Vox Machina. Before we just talk a little bit more, maybe uh, we could just mention the tone 
is from the very beginning, like, I think the second line of or dialogue is, what the fuck? Like, this is an adult cartoon, and it has... Yes. I say cartoon, an animated... People get really upset if you call it a cartoon. It's an animated show. Um, I, I will slip in and accidentally call it cartoons, and I genuinely don't mean that as an insult. Car- I don't I don't think it is. If somebody says to me, you like watching cartoons, I go, yes, I do. Um, but it's an animated show, but it's for adults. Like the, you, you wouldn't want to be sitting down to watch this with your seven-year-old. Um, so it starts no. with people swearing. Like when Scanlan is introduced, there's he is having sex. Yeah, like he and and we in general, like I feel like a lot of the time when we see Scanlan, he is like in a brothel. Um, I will also add that Scanlan uh, expresses frequent sexual interest in a number of individuals, uh, regardless of gender. Oh, he's pansexual. So some, some good queer representation. Yeah, um, and he is. Uh, I'm trying to. Uh, he's a very generous lover from from the looks of this. Since when we do mm. cut back to him in the middle of the battle, he's <laughs> he's basically going down on the uh, on the half minotaur lady that he's uh, he's right. hooking up with, and uh, yeah, so it's just one of those. It's like they are not afraid to show stuff like that. They are not afraid to get dark with it. And as we go later on, there are a couple. Yes. Of, fantastically scary scenes um, yes they're not afraid to get scary they're not afraid to get dark they're not afraid to get very violent and they're not afraid yeah. to say fucking shit and stuff like this so like be prepared yeah. if you're but definitely this. so this yeah is, adult focus this is not yeah, not a thing focus. to uh watch with your children and probably. it is very funny, i mean depending on think, your personal you know, opinions i guess yeah in my in my opinion it's very funny i think it's, I think it's funny. yeah yeah and, and I will say also, like, even this first episode, like, it really is uh, pretty dark. I mean, so we begin with the kind of comedic violence, right, of all of these other, this, like, other adventuring D&D party getting killed off. But, so we, we have this creature, right, who turns out to be a dragon. And uh, uh, so we have them, they kind of go through this village. Uh, I think uh, Vax in particular, maybe, like, bonds with a child, and then they come back to the village. They kind of go, they face down the dragon. They're not particularly successful. They come back to the village and everybody is dead. Uh, and the kid that Vax had bonded with, he like, that kid is like barely alive, but they're not able to heal the kid in time. And he doesn't make it like he like dies in Vax's arms. Like it's, it's very, it's a very sad scene. Yeah, it is exactly what everybody thinks was happening in the Middle Ages, which is if you were a peasant, you're going to get crushed by either random rebel soldiers or dragons. Yeah, which uh, which I will talk about uh, that aspect of the show more in uh, in a bit in a future segment, but uh, Mm -hmm. I won't get into quite that detail now. But yeah, so we we are certainly getting the sense um, that this is a pretty formidable opponent. And also, we know already at this point that there's something a bit suspicious going on. Because so, so we have Vex and Vax, who are twins and uh, who I believe are half-elves? Uh, yes, half-elves. And they're, they're both yeah. basically playing similar characters. One of them is a rogue, the other one is an archer. Um, right, and so they're the kind Vex, of like... Yeah, Vex is an archer yeah. and Vax is a rogue. And they're also the kind of like, you know... They sort of seem very badass. They're a little bit more like deadpan and serious, slightly, I would say, than many of the than some of the other characters. Um, they're very snarky. I mean, I, I especially, you know, I tend to like them, and I especially I love uh, Vex because, as you know, I love a mean woman. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, so that's their kind of vibe. But uh, Vex reveals that a dragon had killed their mother when they were young and that it was a little unclear if it was because of something related to that or because of some like additional kind of studies or research that she was doing. But for whatever reason, she now has this ability where basically it's an ability that like is useful, but also kind of sucks, which is that whenever a dragon is around, she gets a migraine. Yeah, it's weird. Pretty much. Yeah, it's a good, it's like um, a very specific version of the spider sense. Right, and exactly. And uh, she got her dragon migraine when they were hanging out just with the council, which means that some somebody has some kind of connection to the dragon on the yeah, council. And they think it's the creepy guy, Finch, I think it is, isn't it? Finch? Yes. Fink? Um, Fince, I think. Fince, yeah, Fince. And they think it's him, and they think it's this creepy guy um, because he's a super creepy guy. And he's the one who's right. anti-Vox Machina. So they are obviously inclined to do that. And at the end of the first episode, they have resolved to kill the dragon. And they are pretty much convinced that he's involved. So they're going to figure out what's going on then. Right. So they go after him. But then when they go after him, they instead realize that he's not the dragon. The guy who seemed like a cool, nice, kind of dumb dude, Krieg. He's the dragon. So this is into episode two now. Yes. Uh, and the other big thing that happens earlier than that in episode two is that they they go shopping. They're at Gilmore's Glorious Goods and they meet Gilmore. And Gilmore, Gilmore is very into, va- into Vax. I, I, we're going to have some trouble occasionally of like me mixing up Vax and Vax because their names are almost exactly the same. And it took me like six episodes to... Get it's that. played up constantly in the show. Even Scanlan's song when he introduced Scanlan is um, uh, the dwarf. Well, I was gonna say he's not. He's not a dwarf. He's a halfling. Um, bard. Bard, and he sings a lot, and he's very good. He's a very good performer. Mm-hmm. The 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 character or the actor who plays him, and he sings. And at the start, he's like, nobody knows which one is which, and <laughs> she's right. Vex, he's Vax, and it's great. And like it, they 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 are well aware that they're doing that sort of stuff. Vax, yeah. um quite clearly is uh, is also bisexual so again they're 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 yes. representing here cuz he is in love with um one of Kilo. the other characters where I didn't want to give it away too too oh, early wow. sir um but he's in love with one of the other characters while also still like clearly getting it on with Gilmore Oh yeah, no, and like, and Gil- Gilmore is very into him, and he at least is very happy to uh, to certainly flirt with, and perhaps more with uh, with Gilmore, which you know also good, good looking dude. So I, I hope they have a good time. Um, but uh, so while they're shopping, uh, they don't get a ton that's useful because Gilmore basically says like we don't really have any good intel on dragons, but he reads them some kind of like vague poetry. Um, that's kind of very like flowery and while they're actually in the cave fighting the dragon Vax manages to figure out that the like flowery language what it actually means is basically like this is where the dragon's weak spot is yeah um the other thing that uh happens in this just this is just a a D&D joke that somebody else explained to me is that they have a dragon killing device like he's got well, what about this dragon killing spear and um vax is like oh yeah that sounds perfect he's like twenty thousand gold apparently that's an in joke in dungeons and dragons that if 
your DM has something for sale for 20,000 gold, it's because you can never afford it. No matter how much right. money you collect, you'll never have 20,000 gold. But if you ever can afford it, it is the the literal end of the game thing. So in, we talked about Adventure Zone, that, that was the raging, surging, flaming sword of doom or sort whatever of doom, have, right? was that event. And they happened to come across it, you know, in in one of their um, gachapon games and that like so it's just one of those things where you have it or you don't oh no i think they did a deal with the deals warlock to get it but yeah it's just one of those things where it's twenty thousand gold is your you'll never be able to afford this right yeah which they which they indeed cannot but they they manage because they kind of figure out this like where the weak spot is they manage to kind of cobble things together uh, and to kill this dragon, so you know that means that they've they've demonstrated their uh, their value and have been quite successful. So like they get titles, they get a like they get a castle, a little castle now, and uh, they're kind of being presented right as they're now going to be kind of part of um, you know the kind of like core force defending Taldoray or yeah, Iman. And, and said the the actual okay, Iman with... the city. Iman is the city, yeah. Yes, Iman's okay. the capital city, and and yes. Taldoria is the the land, um, and then Whitestone later on is the other city that uh, Percy is from. Right. Um. So basically, uh, Krieg, who was the general, um, they follow Fince, uh, into his mansion, and they think that they're going to stop him from killing Krieg because they think Krieg is a good guy, um, right. and as Fince is about to tell them that Surprise. Krieg is a bad guy, he stabs him in the back, and they still don't seem to get that he is, and then. It takes them a while to be like, wait, you're the bad guy? Yeah, you're the bad guy. And they're like, oh, but that was cool. Like, Vax is like, good technique. I didn't even hear you. Like, um, and, and Krieg also is the one who kind of uh, argued for them to be brought in, which, yeah. like, because of that, they're like, oh, he seems great. And then it turns out that really the reason he argued for them to be brought in is because, like, he thought they were, like, pathetic and easily and easy to defeat. Yeah, and then basically they discover that he has a secret portal in his quarters. Uh, they go through it. It's behind um, a really sexy p- picture of a tiefling. Tiefling are uh, a race of people in... Um, it's a race of people in Dungeons and Dragons who their ancestors at some stage made deals with demons. So Yes, I will talk got, about that actually. Oh, you're going to talk about that? Oh yeah, cool. Um, but uh, this is... So, and we also, at the end of episode two, get our introduction to the uh, couple, the the power couple who will become our main villains, uh, so that we have this, uh, you know, this couple who are traveling, Lord Silas and Lady Delilah Briarwood, as we'll find out they are named. They are ambushed by bandits. We think, like, oh, no, you know, they're this, the you know, the bandits are the bad guys. They're attacking this couple, and it then becomes quite uh, clear very quickly that in fact uh, the bandits uh, bit off way more than they can chew and they are brutally slaughtered by this couple who then obviously and by uh, Silas in particular and so they will obviously be our main new threat. Yeah and that's um, that's very D&D where uh, characters like and it's very much like the way Critical Role has worked in the past is mm-hmm. that you finish a, a story arc and then you'll have your little moments in between. And then, you know, your little interstitials where people level up and you go and you buy your gear or whatever. And then you introduce a new threat. And the way that this is done in 
in Critical Role itself is they're just having the dinner. So the dinner, which is part of the next episode, which is called The Feast of Browns, but in that episode of the show, Matt Mercer didn't tell the other characters that the Briarwoods were going to it. And none of the other characters, except for Percy, Percy wrote his own backstory. And the backstory mm-hmm. was that his family was killed by Silas and Delilah Briarwood. He picked the names, made them up, gave them to Matt Mercer. And then maybe seven, eight, nine months later, these names just get dropped at the start of like, a random guess episode. Who's, guess who's at dinner? Nobody else knows anything about it. But if you ever watch the video of it, it's genuinely sh- like you can see the shock. Mm-hmm. That goes across that the um um is it Liam O'Brien's face like I think it's Taliesin. Tal- Taliesin, yeah. yeah. So yeah, Taliesin. so he's just sitting there, and it's like it's good. Good he remembered. He remembered his backstory well enough, and he knew who yeah. his people were. And it's not just like, buddy, aren't these the guys who murdered your whole family? You don't have to remind him, but it's just the fact that he's the only one that reacts, and that's one of the, the beautiful things about Critical Role is uh, mm-hmm. the DM knows all of the backstories, knows all of this stuff, and then yeah. Starts bringing it in for each of the characters as you go along. Yeah, and that then really works in the show too, right? Is that like you have these people show up and we obviously as the audience already know that like these guys are bad news because we've seen the scene with the previous episode of them killing the bandits in the woods. But then when they show up for dinner, it's really interesting because everybody's just like, oh, cool, nice to meet you. And then Percy just immediately like freaks the fuck out. <laughs> and goes into almost catatonic states just staring them, which is what happens in, in the start of this next episode. Right, which is then, so basically it's because, right, they're the people who, in taking over the city of Whitestone, they did that by killing his entire family, which I'm not going to say they deserve it, but now that I know what the full name of the family is, I'm like, "Mm, did they, though? (laughs) They do have uh, a very large uh, group of names put together. And Dorolo is also such a weird name as a family name. And, like, the first chunk of it is, like, so, like, Germanic that I'm just like, what's your family do in the war? <laughs> well, in fairness, you could also wonder where Grog's family were on the 6th of January, you know? Like, it's... Uh... Well, that's... That's fair. Uh, so, yeah, so we've got these people, you know, showing up, right? And uh, Percy uh, tells the others what's going on, and uh, they start to investigate... And uh, Vax goes to kind of check out what's going on and uh, finds this hidden book, but then also gets uh, gets charmed by Silas, who seems to be a vampire. Yeah, so and, Vax is yeah. the rogue, sneaks in while everyone else is at dinner, sneaks into the room. Um, dinner ends up being shorter than it would have been because Percy makes quite the scene. Yeah, I mean, because basically they're like, oh, those Dorolos, like, they fucking sucked and they abdicated. And then Percy's like, that's not true. You murdered my daddy. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the the Briarwoods go back up to the room and catch uh, Vax. Now, they're clearly vampire type people. They put a little bit of a spell on him. But as Vax says himself, my God, you two are a very attractive couple. And, uh, and he's just like, he's, you can tell he's like, well, I could be down for a bit of, a bit of action with the two of these. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and then he gets bitten on the neck, leading to a yeah. big action scene. 
Yeah, and, and I will add that also at dinner, meanwhile, uh, I can't remember, but one of them also kind of managed to uh, charm and put some, inf- some like magical influence on Sovereign Uriel as well, who then is, you know, annoyed with Vox Machina for having upset his guests over dinner. Yeah, they have the ability to basically control people or control people's yes. emotions, and they use that to great effect throughout the series. Yes. So we have this uh, so we have this kind of big showdown that happens while uh, well Scanlan is not part of the uh, the big showdown battle because he is busy distracting the guests with a rather raunchy musical performance on his song Beads of Love um, <laughs> which you know it's pretty pretty funny. It's pretty good. Scan like it, it's one of those things it, it, the humor might not work for everybody but it works for me so. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was I was here for it, and so you know, so they've got this big battle, and which ultimately they you know lose, and the the Briarwoods basically are kind of like you know I guess like concerned enough that they basically just kind of take off. They leave their coachman behind, at which point Percy, who you know up until now, except for you know his sad revenge stuff, seems I don't know basically like a dude with a gun. Um, we're, we're going to talk about each of the characters. Um, I think it's after the fifth episode you've marked it in here. But uh, Percy is my least favorite of uh, the the main cast of Vox Machina. But I yeah. know that could just be the fact that he is a steampunk character. And um, uh, I know that in Dungeons and Dragons, there's a name for that type of character. Uh, an Arb- Arbiter, maybe, or something along those lines. Um, but yeah, I, oh, I hate steampunk in general. Sorry. Anybody who's a steampunk fan. I don't hate you. I'm just not a fan of steampunk in general. I'm not a fan of the aesthetic. And I'm not a fan of introducing guns into science or into fantasy writing. It. I mean, they, they did they did have gunpowder by the uh, by the early 14th century in Europe. Yeah, of course they did, Sarah. I mean, not like a gun quite like this. But, uh, you know, but it does, it does indicate that he actually, like... Uh, you know, eventually we'll find out more about the gun, but I'll just say, you know, it wasn't just something that he like bought at a regular store for now, it, and called, we'll talk more about it as we go later. It's it's a it's a class called artificer, is what yes. the, that Dungeon and Dragons people do, and not yes, <laughs> that makes more sense. Yeah, <laughs> as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, the hell? Is, why would an arbiter be making shit? Yeah, artificer <laughs> is is the uh, the class. Yeah, so uh, the thing that we learned about Percy at the end of this episode is that Percy's got a whole move situation where uh, he, like, has a weird, like, shadowy kind of, like, plague doctor mask face where then he, like, gets a weird voice and gets very, like, driven on the revenge situation and, uh, like, quite brutally attacks this guy who clearly doesn't, like know anything and it's really well done at the end of this episode because while vax is up in the briarwoods room he comes across this mention of the whispered one and then yes the creature which is inside um percy gives very much whispered one vibes mm-hmm. it's like a black smoke that uh sp- kind of takes control of his voice and it's implied as maybe speaking in his ear so as I was watching this, I was like, oh, maybe the, the Whispered One got Percy. Now, again, we'll talk later on when it's revealed who the Whispered One is, but that's for later on in the series. Right. And the other thing, of course, important at this stage is that this book that Vax found in their chambers, uh, the that Vox Machina does end up, in fact, with the book. Yeah. So, 
Yes, uh, but Sovereign Uriel is not pleased at this whole situation and uh, has Vox Machina arrested. Uh, and we hear in the next episode that basically, like, thanks to the intervention of Lady Allura, they end up basically just kind of, like, placed under house arrest, essentially. Yeah, and their building is their home base in the show, in the the podcast, in the, the Twitch show or whatever you yeah the way you want to call it and that's where they would do all their interstitial stuff they go back and oh where what are you doing now um oh i'm down in my room practicing with my axe or i'm mm-hmm. just convening with my god so it's in that interstitial stuff where you get your character building and your you know your moments between right. the characters and stuff yeah and in the show thus far we see relatively little of it but yeah. But presumably that's also because they kind of edit out a lot of that interstitial yeah, stuff. because you don't need it. You've got the visual medium to show. Right. But what we do get is that they're in the keep under house arrest and get attacked by some cool undead beings. Yeah. This is, I think this is a great scene. Like the last time I was yeah. on, we were talking about the mirror attack scenes in Solomon Kane. And this is very reminiscent of that where some like ghost ghost demon things are coming through the walls and they're using yeah. the shadows to attack people and anywhere there's shadows they they're much stronger and you're trying to fight them off and your sword's not going to do much damage to them stuff and it, like even as again an animation not a cartoon i always say cartoon again and i will slip so again not meant as an insult to people who are enjoying this type of medium but it is very well done like it's scary yeah 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 no absolutely and yeah and so they're they're very creepy um and uh, you know so they kind of are trying to get the book um and the other thing actually that happened in the fight previously is that when they were fighting pike got attacked by delilah who's the one basically silas is a vampire and delilah is like the magic user essentially and we'll find out more about exactly the kind of details about that later but Delilah in the course of the fight attacks Pike and that attack seems to have in some way cut her off from her connection to the Everlight as it's called so yeah. this uh so this magic, Pike is the or, like goddess the, essentially yeah she's the cleric and she was able to infuse the weapons with holy magic which obviously not particularly good if you're a vampire person and right. Grog was able to inflict a wound on um Silas so uh, Delilah shouts, this dwarf is entirely too troublesome. And then it's, isn't it like weird black smoke hand kind of yeah. grabs her? Yeah, she's got like a, gra- a black smoke that looks like it kind of even like goes through her chest almost. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah. So, and that has uh, disturbed her connection to the Everlight, which is her deity. And she's not able to have her kind of normal abilities, essentially. Um, so yeah, so that's the other thing that's going on there. So basically they, uh, after this incursion, right, they decide it's time to go to, uh, what is the city's name? White, Whitestone? White, Whitestone. Whitestone. Yeah. Whitestone. Uh, there's like Briarwood and Whitestone and I keep like, and I'm like the Briarstones and Whitewood. So anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So Whitestone is Percy's original home city. Let's call yes. it White Havens. <laughs> the place of the white people. Yeah. Uh, the haven for white people, <laughs> which we all need. They're very oppressed. In case you weren't aware. <laughs> of course, of course. It's so hard to be a white man in America. <laughs> Stop um, it, it's hard to be a white man anywhere. <laughs> uh, 
So they're going off to Whitestone, and Pike, meanwhile, says that she's going to stay behind and go to a temple and do, and rebuild her connection to the Everlight. And I will also say, so we get like a really sweet insight into Pike and Grog's relationship. And I really like that, you know, for me, watching this without being really familiar with Critical Role and without knowing really much of the background of their relationship, you really do, I think, still, I think they're really successful in still showing us that connect, like, really, I would say actually kind of showing rather than telling that connection, that we don't know what the background is, we don't know what their history is, if you're just watching the show and don't know the series. But you really kind of get a sense of the genuine care that they have for one another and how hard it is for her to leave him and for him to be without her and how like sad she and how sad he is. And it's a really sweet moment, which I, yeah. which I really liked. And as I said, I think it's impressive to manage to do that with characters that, you know, you don't know that much about at this stage. And, and even just the way they're drawn, um, like he is such a massive character and yes. she is such a tiny little dwarf know, lady really and then like she's giving him a big hug and she barely comes up to his like waist and you're like oh that's really sweet and then when she can't reach the everlight when she can't commune with her god effectively um he's in trying to make her feel better now, he's obviously a big slow moving lumbering like idiot is how most of them describe him at various points but he's he's very sweet in what he's saying to her and like you can talk to your god through this and that sort of stuff to her and and then he picks it up and tries to talk to the god for hey god why aren't you talking to pike you know this sort of stuff and and i said she's really upset and he's like trying to calm her down and then when she decides to stay away from them like she's going to stay and go to a temple and they are they are literally broken up and that's because as i said if you listen to the campaign they're lifelong friends they've been friends since they were little children like since she was a child dwarf and since he was a child goliath yeah oh that's cute so they head out to whitestone and that's the beginning of the next episode of episode five and okay i I don't feel as strongly negatively about steampunk as you do. Uh, however, I also did not connect a ton with Percy as a character. And that's because like Percy's vibe, which we start to see as he becomes really more kind of central to this arc in, you know, in these couple episodes, is that there's a lot of like, ah, yes, it's the sullen white man with a gun who can't express his emotions and then every now and then just brutally kills people. And that's not a character that I, I don't love. I I just, I don't, I don't love it. I'm kind of like sick of that, like man who can't express his emotions in media and real life. I'm a hundred percent with you on this. Um, It's, it's a weird, like we, I always, come up with this i don't think that's the intention but whether or not it's the intention or not that's the character that percy is playing or the, right. that percy is and he is this loner guy what really annoys me about him in particular in the show as opposed to in critical role um is a lot of it would be solved with a conversation like yes himself yes facts have a relationship um 
They're, they're not sleeping together, but you know, she's clearly a little bit interested in him. I do not know why. I know. I know. I was going to say, I feel like they're like setting up that being a thing. And I'm like, oh, you were, you were way too cool for him, lady. Yeah. She's, Vex is, Vex is super fucking cool. And, uh, and played by Laura Bailey. Come on. It's beautiful. But, uh, she's, she's interested in him and she's talking to him. And at so many occasions, Percy has a chance to tell them. Even a fraction of it. Even yes. if he says, I have vowed revenge on the yes. people who killed my family. Until he heard the word Briarwood, it wasn't mentioned. And nope. then it comes up and he's like, I have vowed revenge. The gun he has is specifically designed and effectively has demons in it, which have it special... has the names of all of the people that he specifically vowed to kill on, the, like, on the gun, right? And... Yeah, and it's like, it's like, it's like saying to people, like, oh, this, this bullet has your name on it. But this this gun quite literally has demon powered bullets with the names of the people that he like. This bullet is meant for Silas Briarwood. Like this bullet right. is meant for Delilah. This bullet is meant for Lord Vedmere or whatever his name is, Captain Vedmere or whatever. And Duke, like, I believe. Duke, yeah, sorry, Duke Vedmere. And it's all it's all there for him. And you're there going, just say this. Like say say it to yes. any of the people in your party. And they have multiple times, even especially when the the black smoke is around him and he's putting on the basque and he is going apeshit like he has lost it and nobody thinks hey like even at the beginning of the last episode why weren't all five of them in a room with him just saying hey percy you need to tell us here yeah yeah after especially after like there'll be a bit right where he in fact almost kills vax uh because like vax tries to interfere while he's you know in his like demon plague mask face situation state and and so he almost kills him it's like at that point it's like you really didn't have five minutes where you could really just sit down and be like Percy you need to like talk now it like takes another like two episodes to get the full story out of this dude yeah exactly um and that's that's the thing uh it's just you wish they would talk but also there's lots of other not talking going on like Vex yes Vax is in love with Keelit. Keelit is in love with Vax. They're not discussing it. And Vex is... Right. I would almost say jealous. But... Yeah, it, which was... A, that is a, That was a weird dynamic. Uh. Well, I think it's because... Like, the t- they're twins. And they've been, like, each other's best friend. Yeah. For their yeah. entire life. And whereas each of them is perfectly comfortable going around and, like, banging whoever is there. And, mm-hmm. you know, having a bit of fun. I think it's implied that Vex recognizes that as an actual connection between Vax and Keelit, as in somebody who might right. take the place of number one uh, for her brother or whatever. And that's where right. that's where that jealousy is coming from. But it just does feel a bit weird when she's looking over and I'm like, hmm, not this one. And you're like, what? <laughs> this, right. this, where, where are these elves from? Alabama? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Um, but yeah, but that is definitely an issue that I have is that it's like, it's just like, it's just like, I mean, it's a, it's a flaw in the show's writing, but it's also a thing about Percy's character that I don't like, that it's like pulling fucking teeth to get him to say 
anything. And they're literally like, they're going to help him carry out revenge on the people that murdered his parents. And he like, cannot give the slightest amount of like, baseline information without them like, begging him to like, please talk for three minutes about your past. Yeah, that's the thing is just Tell him, just say it, just say stuff. Yeah. Um, basically, in that last episode, that was episode five we were just talking about, um, Delilah wants her book back and uh, sends some villagers uh, from the surrounding towns around Whitestone to attack them. Um, and they're basically yes. zombified villagers. And it's a, another scary action scene. Um, yeah. And they, they come across some resistance members, which leads yes. to episode six, Spark of Rebellion. Well, but the other thing that I need to say about episode five is that episode five also has the scene that's like not not like scary in the same way, but I think one of the most just like viscerally upsetting and disturbing scenes actually that I've seen in like a lot of things, which is that so, you know, they know, right, that Vox Machina is coming after them. And so they bring in this family, right, into the castle. And, you know, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but you know that the Briarwoods are, like, inviting a family to the castle. It's not going to turn out well. Uh, The one thing which is deeply unrealistic is that the children are like, are we going to have a nice dinner? And it's like, you haven't (laughs) figured out this situation yet that, like, it's not going to be a good thing to get invited to the Briarwoods castle anyway. But... So you got this family, right? And we, you know, we know watching the show, obviously, that like something bad is going to happen. But then what specifically happens is that it seems they have like picked this group of people uh, because they can then like, based on their differential like sizes, essentially uh, murder them and then dress them up like the members of Vox Machina and hang them from the big, like from the sun tree, this like big tree in the town square. It's basically and a so, and it's like including. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so including, you know, like two children, um, and it's, it's extremely upsetting. And it's like, because like, it's like, you can see the grotesquity, right? Like, like uh, the like grotesqueness of like, that these are like children dressed up. Yeah, it's just it's very upsetting. Yeah, it is actually it's scary. And it's one of those things where like, th- yeah, they're sending a message. That is what the, fuck the, if you were going to send a message like that is something like that is mm-hmm. telling Vox Machina, this is what's going to happen to you. Uh, the sun mm-hmm. tree is a holy tree. Keelit, who is um, a druid, or uh, she's a half elf druid, um, and she can commune with trees. Like she's got poison right. ivy powers a little bit, um, and at the same time, sorry, in that last episode, Pike has gone to uh, basically. Yes. Um, I was going to say a nunnery, a convent, um, an equivalent of a convent for her god, uh, where she meets a bunch of other clerics who are telling her you can just convene, and she can't. She still can't get in contact with her god. Right. So this is then, as you as you said, right, we meet the resistance that leads into the next episode where Vox Machina is kind of, you know, building these connections with this rebel, with these rebels. And we also find out that the rebel leader, uh, this guy, Archie, who was a childhood friend of Percy's, uh, he has then been captured. And so they then need to go and rescue him. Um, so, and this is where you have this moment, right? So one of the people involved in this captivity and who is torture involved in torturing Archie is, uh, this gentleman, Captain Stonefell. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is, I think maybe the first time that we see the names on the gun and we see that Captain Stonefell's name is there and that it is very clearly like, this is a bullet that is marked for this person 
who is, you know, was this, it was one of the people who betrayed his parents or whatever. Yeah. And that be, while he's like doing that, while he's, you know, brutally killing this guy, I think this is when we first kind of like get a sense of like, oh, he's really not in control or we get another kind of good glimpse at least of him, like really not being in control when this happens. Yeah. And just, I might not be a fan of Percy's character, the, the vocal performance again is just excellent. Like he really does play yes. off that he's, he's, he's strained at the very edge of a, th- a tether at all points. Yes. And, and the other thing that I actually, I don't know. Um, so the, well, to spoil things slightly for a future episode, right? There's a, there's a demon who's involved in this whole situation. And the demon is actually also played by uh, Matt Mercer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I actually don't, like there's points in which I'm actually like not 100% sure who's doing the voice there. Yeah, so Matt Mercer does the voice when he's talking to Percy. And then when Percy is... So when the voice is Percy's voice, or it's meant to be Percy's voice, it's an overlay of the two of them together. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, so when Percy is talking to the demon and the demon's just saying it back to him, it's Matt Mercer and he's like, Yes, you must kill them. And then the overlay is what they do I mean, when it's like Percy talking to the people that he's trying to kill. And it's clear it's the, that he's like... It's the whisper voice oh. of the demon. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Uh, yeah. And the, and the other thing that we learn at this point is that, you know, Percy thought that his whole family had been murdered. It turns out that his sister Cassandra is in fact still alive and that the Briarwoods have had her in captivity. Yeah. And earlier on when Percy was telling the story about being killed, we see her getting killed. Like, we see her getting two, three arrows in her back, and Percy is left with the choice of running or trying to go back with her. But she, like, she looks dead. Oh, yeah, I personally do not blame him at all for assuming that she is dead and that he needs to just go. Um, And he himself was wounded and injured. I think that's fair. Yeah, so. Yeah, no, I, I do not blame him for making that assumption and moving along. And that that's the end of episode six is finding out Cassandra's life. We get into episode seven. Yes. Uh we also get the uh the like little a little like flashback scene so that there's, you know, this other guy, Professor Anders, who uh will of course be one of the other people whose name is on Percy's gun. He ultimately, you know, betrayed the parents. But he was Percy and Cassandra's tutor. And we see him, like, he gives them this whole speech, right, about this mineral called residuum, which has these cool powers. And then he's also, like, his, like, their parents come in and he's like, see, I can, like, do all these things. Then And they're like, buddy, like, we just hired you to teach the kids. Like, we don't, we're not doing this, like, weird other shit that you want us to do. We're not funding that. And, like, that is, you know, why he ends up switching sides, basically, is because he's, like, real bitter about this shit. He, uh, he Walter White's so fucking quick. Like, he's a teacher who yes! turns to the dark side because one little setback. And he's like, all right, better be evil then. Um, and it's also this residuum that's in the, the rocks of Whitestone, right. possibly the Whitestone themselves, that is the thing which ends up attracting the Briarwoods because they need power to try and help yes. free this whispered one or whispering one that yes. we're talking about. But also, so, okay, so I'm watching the show. And first of all, I'm like... 
Hersey, you were like shocked that this guy betrayed your family because he seemed like he could barely stand any of you. Like he seemed like he hated your parents because they like wouldn't let him do what he wants. He seems like he also like couldn't stand you or Cassandra. And he was like, this is beneath me and these children fucking suck is like his whole vibe. And he's a terrible teacher. Like all he's doing is he's essentially just like lecturing these like children who are like, I don't know what's supposed to be like 12 and 14 or something. Like he's just lecturing them about like his super advanced research. Um, and they're, and it's like, shouldn't you be teaching them like math or something? Like, what are you doing? What is this <laughs> education? About minerals, Sarah, because that's the thing he likes. It's when um, I have a free class in school and I have to cover like a French teacher. Those kids aren't getting any French lessons. They're getting some physics. And uh, I just walk in like, Oh, by the way, there, uh, bonjour, y equals mx plus c. Like, they're getting some maths, they're getting some some theory in at that point. But yeah, so that's basically what happened. Like, Anders is a terrible teacher, and he yeah. turns his back and sells them out so fucking fast. Yeah, which is also, as I said, not surprising, because he seems like he hates them. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He, he literally hates them. Um but that's all in flashback. So we get back to the main thing where they're actually talking to Percy about, hold on a second, Percy, you lost it when we were trying to break out Archibald. You like pointed your gun at us. What the fuck's going on here? And uh, Percy explains that he had a dream one night about how to make this gun, this yep. gun which has like demon powers on it. Yep. And he's like, don't worry, it came to me in a dream. It's fine. And they do not pursue this further. And it's like, ah, uh, we need more on this situation. We need to like inspect this thing. Like, that's not a reassuring explanation for what's happening here. Yeah. Vax looks like he wants, to, he's about to ask another question when Keelid accidentally, uh, she's, yes. she's doing some magic on the sun, sun tree. But like, he's not pushing the issue. It's just like, uh, just. And then there's a fire starts and he's like, all right, we have to go. Um, like, I get I, that a lot is going on, but it's also like this, this seems like something that needs to be handled and nobody's really pushing. Like they'll push for a minute and then like something will distract them and then they'll be like, ah, whatever, I'll worry about it later. It's like, no, you should worry about this now. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's one of those weird things where they are pushing stuff. They're kicking cans down the road, which need to be addressed really quickly. Um, but yeah. Scanlon... Uh, says right we need to get into where Anders is but you know Vedmir's house is across and there's a ton of army soldiers there and they're blocking the way so Scanlan goes I'll break in there I'll cause a distraction the rest of them were like no you can't do that Scanlan's like I can Scanlan's hand which is the the spell he has which allows him to have like I, I believe the spell is called Mage Hand uh, mm-hmm. and then they uh, like Matt Mercer has allowed them to uh, use it to do certain things that I, I'm sure Mage Hand probably can't actually do if you're playing D and D 100 by the rules. But he uses Mage Hand all the time to do pretty much anything he wants, and it's pretty fucking cool. Um, hmm. and he he causes this does like an action scene where he's getting attacked by um Duke Vedmir and all Duke Vedmir soldiers, and that allows the rest of them to sneak in on Professor Anders' house. And it's a great scene also, I would say, in terms of like giving giving a nice little kind of mini arc for Scanlan, who, you know, obviously like has skills and abilities that are really valuable, but like isn't the like guy who you typically pick to go up and like have like a physical battle with a very large gentleman. 
And uh, he, you know, it, it really, like, there is this kind of initial, like, obviously you can't do this. And, like, then he, like, manages to, you know, hold his own and is, you know, successful and manages to, like, pull this off. And it's, like, it's a very, like, nice, like, kind of Scanlan episode. Yeah, and there's a, there's a, a little joke that comes from Critical Role in there. Uh, when you're playing D&D, now, again, I've never played D&D, but just from listening to podcasts and, and seeing episodes of it, if you want to... Um, charm a lock or use magic on a lock or pick a lock you have to roll a d20 and mm-hmm. i think uh throughout the series that scanlan uh, and the guy playing scanlan um effectively i think they he had it was it 17 or 18 in a row he rolled mm. and had fails so he's like completely unable to crack locks and throughout the show i think three times in season one he tries to pick locks using his Oh, but it's, uh, right. And it's Vax, too, actually. There's also a bunch of things. Yeah, there's a bunch of things, and it's like, okay, yeah, this is clearly the, like, you just got, like, a, like, critical fail, because it's, like, he's just, like, standing there at it, because, like, they're, they're like, going, I can't remember if it's, if it was, like, that scene where they're rescuing Archie, or if it's the next where they're trying to rescue Cassandra, but at some point, right, they're, like, they're, like, each coming in through a different door, and uh, they have this, like, thing where it's like Vax who is supposed to be you know the rogue right so he's supposed to be able to like pick this log and he's just spending like 45 fucking minutes yeah um uh, trying to like uh like trying to pick this lock and is like this door is evil uh and just like cannot get this door and like finally like some like some guard like goes outside to and like starts like peeing and they like knock him out and that's how they eventually actually get in yeah and that that's something that happened in the show at least once where the the um gm that was like they, they all tried because there are rules like you're only allowed to try twice each or something like this so there was one door in particular that they just could not pick they couldn't find a way to get through so he had to improvise and it was like a guard just happens to walk through and it's like oh shocked if there's people there oh crap what's going on yeah like there's no reason for the guard to have been walking through this heavily locked door there was no reason for him to be in the room that they ended up going mm-hmm. into etc so it's just i and i like it when they put in stuff like that so if you've been listening to the podcast you will recognize that you recognize that scene yeah. effectively yeah cool. so they go to get to rescue cassandra uh, come to uh, Professor Anders, who seems to have known they were coming. Uh, he cuts Cassandra's throat quite dramatically at the end of episode seven. Um, and then we kind of move into episode eight. Uh, you know, you know, so we end on the kind of big cliffhanger of that with episode seven, but Keyleth does manage to heal her in her uh, capacity as a druid. Um, and then they have this whole fight with Professor Anders, who has a like creepy, gross magic tongue. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's very gross. That's something that's in in Crimes of Grindelwald, the second Harry Potter movie. Like he's got a silver tongue that they cut out, and he can put in that's a, that allows him to like convince people to do stuff. And I think it feels like it's taken straight from Dungeons and Dragons because that's a thing yeah. that apparently can have. Um, the thing about Keelit saving uh, Cassandra is Keelit is not a particularly good druid because she's just a druid in training. Effectively, she's meant to be much younger than right than a regular druid would be so she's delighted when she actually manages to save cassandra usually mm-hmm. obviously you would have your cleric do that but pike can't commune with god and is off in the temple and i think that is meant yeah. to represent the fact that ashley johnson was incredibly busy when mm-hmm. this arc was going on so she would regularly miss episodes to the point where yeah. when they get around to now that they're making a lot of money from this that she is hologrammed in 
when she can't actually be there in person. So there's uh-huh. like a hologram of Ashley Johnson sitting at the table playing D&D in a completely different country. But yeah, and so and I think actually there is like a very kind of nice, um, you know, also kind of then like arc with Keyleth, right? That she, you know, initially like she's she's in this group, but it seems like she's sort of, I guess kind of auxiliary in terms of like she clearly like does it like she clearly doesn't have like the skills at the level that um pike has and it seems like kind of in some ways that they have kind of not identical but a kind of similar skill set but like pike is better at it um yeah. and so like we have a nice kind of arc for keila sort of starting to come into her own which then like they kind of like plot wise get into the fact that like she's in training she's supposed to be in this period where she's like essentially kind of like testing herself and developing skills before in theory eventually hopefully becoming the leader of her people and uh, that uh you know it's her like kind of you know gaining more self-confidence i guess which is very nice yeah it's cool like it's 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 really well put together um percy uh finds a way to knock the silver tongue out of anner's mouth um by deflecting bullets you know because anner's taught him the angle so well so he's using his own skills against him uh does so and then goes all dark percy where he is like uh, just completely fixated on shooting him with the pepper box and his name disappearing from the site gun barrel showing that he has murdered another one of the people on his list yes which i'm i'm kind of fine with i will say and like you're like fuck this guy this guy's a weird creep and yeah. a really shitty professor so you know he was and, fuck and him. even even the way he was acting towards cassandra was very creepy like yeah your yeah. mind now kind of stuff you're like oh, what the fuck? <laughs> nope absolutely not no so you know fuck off let, let, hashtag let him die professor anders um so uh, yeah so they you know have the success that right but um and they also, they figure out that there's, like, going to be this, like, ritual that's associated that's going to be on the solstice, but they don't know any details. Um, and then Delilah uh, summons a fuck ton of zombies. Yay, zombies. Yeah, at this point, Delilah just seems like the most dangerous of the Briarwoods. Like, oh, yeah, like, Silas is, like, just... Silas is all brawn. Like Delilah is clearly like the brains, and she's also the magic user. Which then leads into the next episode, where we find out that basically she's the one who led to them being this way. Yeah, that she like made this deal. She seems to have, you know had like some magic already, but like made this deal with the whispered one, where it seems like both she became more powerful, and also that Silas was dying, and she uh, revived him as a vampire. So, pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah, it's class. Uh, like yeah. that. It's nice the way that they just layer this on, and that's one of the the beautiful things about it. Be, this being a series as opposed to a movie, like we're seven episodes in, and they're able to layer that sort of detail into it. Yeah. As opposed to in, and uh, if this was an animated movie, you'd be pushing it at two hours plus now of screen time, and they wouldn't be able to be adding more information like that into the show. Like they'd be needing to come to a a denouement pretty quickly. Like, so it's nice that they're able to give these flashbacks and it really leads to perhaps the Briarwoods weren't always evil. They were always Mm -hmm. dickheads, but uh, Silas was dying. So Delilah made it basically a deal with the devil. Yeah. 
and yeah and then and then got this whole situation but then also i like i also i really like the fact that it very much kind of emphasizes like delilah is very much the brains behind this operation like silas silas seems like he just kind of like does what she says yeah he's he's smart and he's talented like he wouldn't want to get into a fight with him he's powerful is he smart i think i mean he's a good fighter no, I think he, it is that he's meant to be an intelligent character, but not cunning, not in the same way she is. Right. So like, Yeah, not, right. He's not grog, is basically what I'm saying. No, and he's not dumb, but he doesn't, like, he's not the strategist. She's the strategist. Yeah. Present himself as a normal person and, you know, rub shoulders with people and have conversations with them. He's, as I said, he's not walking around going... Silas strong like Grog would be but right. he's also as I said he wouldn't be Vex's intelligence level or no no Delilah's. right uh and we also by the way that meanwhile uh Pike has uh you know been communing with the Everlight which is something that he's clearly been like struggling with and essentially like and, and this seemed like kind of like made me tear up eventually that it is like basically it's like what the issue is is in part like really is about like her own feelings of guilt and of like feeling like she's doing something wrong when it's like actually like what it turns out is that like no you just need to like actually like accept that this is what you value and come to terms with who you are and that you care about your friends and it's like it's very sweet yeah and uh yeah so pike is communing effectively with her god again um which is a good thing because yeah everyone else is about to get killed by zombies and uh, they have no way of killing the zombies. And then Pike Astral projects herself yes. into the tree. They're all hiding in the sun tree. And um, she's like, oh, by the way, uh, I'm going to kill a bunch of them myself. Like, effectively burns them, I think. And then she enchants everyone's weapons. So they're glowing gold yeah. so that they can kill zombies. Because Pike, yeah. in the words of the internet parlance, is OP as fuck. Hell Yeah. But yeah, so she's so she's really the one who, uh, you know, really gets everything going. And I kind of like the fact that like she's astral projecting. It's kind of funny with the fact that like the actress was actually or is actually like coming in as a hologram that she's like basically a hologram in like these scenes. Uh, so because of this, they're able to fight the zombies and uh, they then manage to get to the Briarwoods castle. And in the dungeons, they find somebody else. So say Dr. Anna Ripley. And at first, Dave, you know, they're like, all right, cool. You can give us some information about the Briarwoods. But then surprise, she's one of the people whose uh, name is on Percy's gun. So we've got a whole thing where we kind of end in uh, the kind of cliffhanger in episode nine is Percy holding her at gunpoint while he's kind of going demon and uh, manages to kind of just be stopped at the beginning of the next episode from killing her. Uh, And at this point also. There's there's one thing about, uh, there's two things about her. One, uh, she is... I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. So I, I don't, I'm not a huge alignment person. You know, you see those like the nine boxes, yeah. chaotic, neutral and all this sort of stuff. Like, so she's clearly an evil person, right? But she's, yeah. she's what would new, you, you normally be called lawful evil. She's doing it for logical reasons and she's doing mm-hmm. it for the medicine or the science or whatever. Right. And I get that. Uh, I don't care if she turns. I think Percy should absolutely blow her head off. Now, I'm not saying necessarily at this point because they need her to go further into the right. caves or whatever. But so it's the same thing as I was saying when we were dealing with the Wheel of Time and spoiler for the Wheel of Time. There's a character called Ingtar 
and he is you know uh, a dark friend and then at the end he decides to let himself die to protect a couple of other people and loads of people go oh it's such a beautiful redemption arc it's like it's not a redemption arc it's not an arc that is a last minute fucking right turn 180 to go into a good guy you've you caused all of this suffering and harm and just making this last minute decision to think it's not an arc the same as we've had this t- loads of times about kylo ren kylo ren yep mass Vader. murderer but like oh because he's really sexy it's fine that he's just gonna like switch sides and like oh he's a good guy and we think he's redeemed and we think that's great fuck off that guy sucks it's not redemption it's a last minute character change and with dr anna ripley which is the other thing we're going to get to in a second is yeah that's she's not there's no redemption like she's a bad person and yeah. she her name should absolutely especially when we see at the start of episode 10 how she led to this um she's almost as culpable as anders and vedmir and everybody else oh so. yeah yeah so, no absolutely and also like her switching sides has nothing to do with her like having ethics it just has to do with like a lack of like it just has to do with the fact that like honestly she's not loyal to anybody exactly also uh her name just stands out like a sore thumb when you like you got everybody else here with their cool fantasy names and then we got anna ripley right yeah i always i always find those characters really fun like i like i find dune really funny that it's like ah yes like all these evil and it's here's duncan idaho and i'm like i'm sorry what this guy his second name is artredes what's his first name paul right well yeah and I also have a lot of thoughts about exactly what, uh, well, I won't get into it. I, I have a lot of thoughts about essentially what the, like, point is of the name of Triades, which I find problematic, but. Cause, <laughs> we cause, talk you know, about we can, that when we finally find a way to do Dune on the podcast. There's an argument for medievalism in Dune. Um, no, there is not, sir. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's a classical reference, which I think makes them seem like they're pieces of shit. And I find it weird as a choice to give as a name to people who are supposed to be the heroes. Hmm. There is the spice trade. Anyway, sorry. Because um, the, the House of Atreides, it's like fucking Agamemnon. Like, the people are fucking garbage. Sarah, get off that soapbox. Sorry. And let's talk about episode <laughs> okay. 10, Depths of Deceit. Yes. So, okay. So he doesn't kill Anna, which I think makes sense in context, but I don't really care about whether he kills her in the long term. Um, but in context, all right, fine. She's mildly helpful. Let's not kill her, whatever. Um, we also have, so in addition, in the, like, once again, the, like, why don't we, like, pursue these problems that, so I think Vex talks Percy into letting Pike examine him, and she's like, a demon is clouding your soul, and then everybody's just like, okay, moving on. <laughs> That's fine, we don't need, we don't need to worry about that right now. Clouding his soul, I can't get, a, I can't get a full reading okay. Let's deal with the next thing. Yes. So, okay. So then they get into this room, right? And uh, Percy looks down and sees Cassandra's name appearing on the barrel of his magic demon gun as she hits a button and traps Vox Machina and Ripley in this big room. And she goes off with uh, the Briarwoods. And Vax also kind of manages to slip under the the barrier, you know, one of those kind of like doors that's going down. I'm doing a motion of going down, which none of the listeners will be able to see because this is not a visual medium. Um, but that he manages to get through. But uh, Silas, once again, is able to charm him as he did before. So uh, that he's not going to be helpful. 
while this is happening, the room starts filling with acid, um, and Scanlan is kind of using Scanlan's hands so that they can, like, fly above the acid temporarily. And the Briarwoods are going toward this ziggurat that they've got with uh, Cassandra and Vax, and uh, Delilah's like, ah, now we have two potential sacrifices for our yeah. mystery ritual. Cassandra turning to the Briarwoods, um, and you can almost almost understand her reasoning for it. Like, she's obviously been charmed, but Percy did leave her. Now, we, we've already discussed it, like, totally understandable why. And then they're the ones who were looking after her when she was at a very, very vulnerable stage. Yeah, and, and it's like know, Stockholm it's, Syndrome, basically. Yeah, basically Stockholm Syndrome, brainwashing. Um, and also, you know, she's been vampire fucking kissed, effectively. Um, yeah, so Scanlan holds them above, above the acid and uh, Grog jumps into the acid and yeah. Pike is effectively keeping him alive he's slowly dissolving and she's trying to heal him at the same time but it's touch and go as to whether or not he can actually get the switch but he does manage to do it and comes out and it's very funny because then he's like standing naked and stuff like and it's 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 right it's a good old joke and he's like not worried or concerned about the fact that he's melting away or whatever he's just worried about whether his dick's still there <laughs> yeah. it's actually the only is it there is it still there um and because yeah because it's also this whole like complicated thing that you need to basically like lift three switches simultaneously and so like percy's got one and anna's got one but then the last one is like inside the ass the like acid bath which is why grog needed to like jump into that yeah it's very D D. like how do you solve this problem we need three people in right this at the same time how are you going to keep yeah. him safe and you're like well it's because again their lucky pike is able to be there at that time yeah, so now they go after Silas and Delilah and the others. Um, Ripley, so, okay, so Ripley's like, I'm going to take off because, like, you can't shoot me or you'll alert them to our presence. And so, like, he's like, err, but, you know, she gets away. And then immediately, I can't remember who, but immediately then the second she leaves, someone just, like, yells, like, hey, guys, we're here. And it's like, <laughs> What? So that was like a, so that was like a little silly but it's like i feel like i feel like if you're gonna have that whole bit you needed to like do a better job of sneaking up on them to justify the fact that percy didn't shoot anna it's such a weird thing like uh like you're right it is it's like let's sneak up let's sneak up hey it's the cigarette like, you know, and it's not even grog like that's the thing about it it's like the rest of yeah i think it's i think maybe percy like it's like what the fuck is wrong with you well he's he's trying to get Cassandra back, but like he still yeah. should have the sense not to do that. Um so Vax has been um put under a spell. Cassandra's been put under a spell. So Vex and Vax have to have a fight. So that's the twins. Yeah. And they're using their skills. Vex is trying not to kill Vax. Um Vax is trying to kill her. Or is he? Because there's a couple of times where maybe he pulls the chance to to get a killing blow on her where she's trying to contact him and get through it's interesting because it's like she or he um you know clearly he's been charged but like it's like occasionally it seems like she kind of gets through to him just yeah. enough that he like holds back a little bit yeah yeah um and then percy is trying to get through to cassandra at the same time uh Keyleth, uh and pike and grog the three of them are all fighting silas while um delilah it has been trying to control everything from the be- 
the you know the top using magic and firing the odd fireball and stuff like this um and keelan eventually kills silas uh using by the channeling the sun tree right yeah and that's brilliant uh so Silas is now dead and Delilah feel, flees into the uh, giant triangular building up there. Is it was it was it bit by ancient aliens? Maybe. And and I will add also that killing Silas also like ends the charm. So yeah. uh Vax and, and it's, it's Cassandra a good thing are back too to because Vax was about to kill Vex and yes. Cassandra was about to get the drop on Percy. Yes, so they've they've got that. But so Delilah then goes in, and now she's like, "All right, we've got to, we've got like, we just got to do this ritual now." I know it's not the solstice, but like, fuck it, we've got to do this. Um, and they go in to try and stop her. She attacks and seemingly like kills or is about you know or, like very badly wounds Keyleth, um, which they will of it you know well you know she she makes it i'll just say they don't they don't kind of like fully manage to get the healing taken care of until the uh the last episode but um so she's dying and meanwhile they're trying to figure out what's what else is going on delilah does this ritual and basically the ritual would be successful except for the fact that she like fucked up and performed it two days early uh, or got desperate and performed it two days early. So now instead of whatever the whispered one is supposed to be, there's just this like weird black orb. And uh, it's just there. Yeah. Um, gets injured, um, basically stabbed effectively when uh, Delilah yeah. was defending themselves. Um, they managed to kill Delilah. She just gets shot. No. Well, um, so Percy shoots Delilah, but he's not actually the one who kills Delilah, which I thought, which I, okay, I, I thought it was interesting. I thought Delilah's death was like a tiny bit anticlimactic, especially with the like failing at the ritual and all that. Like I, I kind of wanted a bit more of a climactic ending for her just because I like, I think she's very cool. Um, mm. But, but I actually do think it's interesting that so like Percy shoots her, but it's like then he is like talked into, you know, not giving into revenge and the demon that's like, controlling his brain um and so like he doesn't kill her and then cassandra actually does which i which i did find satisfying yeah it's satisfying that happens um now no spoilers alert but you know dad's not always dead oh good <laughs> yeah yes I, you know i love mean women <laughs> no but like i think i think she's a great villain um like silas silas is fine um like i i like silas as like i'm kind of into the like power couple where she's running things vibe um yeah. uh, but like she's clear like she's the interesting one um what I, what I like about them as as you said as a power couple is they're a power couple that are like so they're the bad guys but yeah. they're still in love with each other. Like they're still doing. Yeah, it's kind of nice. Like they really like each other. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like they—they're still like they've obviously been around a long time because you're talking about a vampire and you know a, a, a witch woman, a lich woman almost. Yeah, since she's raising zombies, so lich. Um, now they've been together for a long time. They've been going around doing this stuff for a long time, and they still enjoy each other's company. You, I guarantee you, they're still yeah. hot fucking sex. Like um, I'm sure they have great sex have after they murder yeah. those children. The and you have this shit going on and Silas goes out of his way to protect her a couple of times. She's clearly gone out of her way. She brings him back from the dead. She makes yeah. communes with demons and stuff. And even though the two of them are working towards bringing back this whispered one, mm-hmm. the, the two of them seem to have like a common goal. So when she gets like They have a good earlier, relationship. They have, I think, I think they have by far the 
uh, best romantic relationship with like the best like communication in the series. Yeah, it's weird because <laughs> you don't usually see that sort of stuff in the bad guys. Like in yeah. the bad guys, um, in this sort of thing, if he died, it wouldn't be that she was broken up. She just would run off to go and do it because mm-hmm. I have to get the spell done. But she's clearly yeah. despondent. Like she's like, no, um, he has a chance to kill Grog at one stage and breaks off to help defend her for a quick second. Yeah. And that's why Grog is still alive. Like, so they're out looking after each other. And even though I said they're the evils, they're the bad guys. It's, it's nice to see like, actually there's yeah. a power couple that are bad and evil and doing bad things, but they still clearly care for each other. So that's, yeah. yeah. Which, and I like that way. I like that nuance and complication with, uh, with villains, but I feel like you don't often get in a lot of things, especially a lot of fantasy I find. Yeah. It's also funny that, um, they really do a good job of then demonstrating, like mirroring what Percy wants to go through is the vengeance thing. So yeah. Percy wants to go through vengeance because his family were killed. Her husband gets killed and clearly her then attacking Keyleth, who killed her husband, is the yeah. bad thing in this. And like you're like going, like this is Percy, this couldn't be more obvious that what you're doing right. is wrong. So mm-hmm. Yeah, and it is, you know, yeah, and it is, and the point is ultimately that, like, Percy, your whole vengeance quest, uh, like, that, you know, consumes all else, right, that the reason for this is that, like, oh, surprise, actually, the reason this, like, gun thing came to you in a dream is because of this, like, demon who I, is named Orthax, I absolutely kept thinking it was named Orthanc, which is the name of, uh, I believe, Saruman's Tower. (laughs) Also... Don't don't say I believe. You absolutely know that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but you know. I wanna I wanna slightly uh limit how aggressively nerdy I seem. Sarah, the other people listening to this didn't hear the conversation we had before we recorded this, but you, you can never claim not to know everything about Lord of the Rings after that half hour chat we had. Anyway, True. um they're uh, leaving. But yeah, so so yes, takes, I kept thinking the team was Orthanc, but it is not. Yes, you did. You knew everything. Um, so Grog takes Silas' sword. Again, another very D&D thing is you loot the victims um, and you take whatever you have. But the sword also kind of whispers at him, which is... Possibly. And, and a sword also we've already on. seen is like clearly magic, right? Like whenever he like attacks somebody with the sword, it seems like it like sucks up their strength somehow and kind of like makes him stronger. So it's a very useful weapon, but is magic in a way that obviously we, you know, have some possibility, right? If it could be sinister, I don't know, not having listened oh, to it's... Critical Role, but you can certainly see a possibility that it'll... Like, even if you don't listen to Critical Role, like looking at the sword absorbing the blood like every time somebody yeah. gets cut like it's it's pretty dang um for people like this is i am talking to a very specific group of people right now but if you happen to play dark souls and not be a big D character the sword is basically a chaos sword so it's taking from the soul of the people that they damage and mm, injure. yeah and that makes like, sense it's badass and cool um yeah so so it seems it seems like they're definitely like seeding at least like i don't know if they'll do anything with it but definitely seeding the possibility at least i would say that there'll be like something involving the sword in 
the future, although it is. On the one hand, I, I don't know if they'll do that or not. It does seem a little, like, similar to the, like, Percy's weapon situation plotline that we just did. I I don't... Right, as in, I'm not sure how the, the TV show is going to do it, but that's not what they did on okay. Critical Role. So, okay, um, so we'll see. So as they're leaving, uh, they can't heal Keyleth, and basically Pike says, I think it's because we're too close to the black ball that is the demon. Um, so they're trying to sneak out and get further away. Then the demon Orthax uh, makes an appearance and we have to deal with Orthax. Yes. Uh, so he, you know, he has to basically have like a, you know, mental, emotional battle where he, you know, decides, I guess, that he'd rather not murder his friends. Um, and so he has this kind of battle of wills with Orthax, essentially, and, you know, manages to do that in part, but he like shoots through his own hand to keep himself from, uh, from shooting his friends. Uh, and, uh, he also, then after all this, he's like, cool. And now I'm going to take my nice gun that I made. And Scanlan's like, dude, the fuck no. <laughs> and throws it into a pool of acid. And I love that. Like while Percy is like, you didn't have to do that. It was fine. And the demon like, she like rises up from the island. is like, ah, <laughs> it's like, it is yeah, very well. funny. It's like, you're sitting there watching a gun. So you got this demon infused gun. You just shot yourself. Also, you've just done the ending to Fight Club. Um, let's just throw that out there. Uh, shooting yourself to get rid of your inner demon. Come on. Um, uh, and <laughs> Scanlon's like, no, what? That, don't be dumb, Percy. Throws in the acid. And as it melts, the demon comes out. And you're like, oh, shit, he was right. Yeah. And after they're out of the ziggurat and away from the uh, the weird orb, they do manage to basically kind of reproduce what Keyleth did to heal Cassandra earlier and manage to save her. So Keyleth is okay. Um, and uh, we also have some additional kind of, we have actually kind of a lot of like, um, things that are kind of seated at the end of this episode. Cause they also like somebody at some point goes to like check on like what the fuck is up with this orb. And like, it kind of like eats some people basically. Yeah. So the orb is down there and they send some clerics in to check on it. Um, like masters from Whitehall or whatever it was they said, and they get sucked in and absorbed. So it yeah. is feeding as they say. Yeah, so the the orb story, the orb whispered one storyline uh, clearly is not quite over, even if, you know, who, who knows, but uh, even if Delilah and Silas seem, at least for the time being, to be dead, the whispered one certainly isn't. This orb is clearly going to be a problem. And then we also have the other quite immediate problem that we get at the end of the episode, which is that they get back to Amon. Uh, they, you know, hear the big announcement, which is that Sovereign Uriel, I guess, is, like, real fucking embarrassed that in, like, two minutes, Silas managed to, like, charm him. But he was like, yes, you're the best. Kill Vox Machina. <laughs> uh, and so because of that, he's like, I'm gonna quit. And maybe you should just have, like, a governing council instead of me. And, like, yeah, Vox Machina is invited person, to be on the council. Yeah. Rather uh, yeah, than one person, you want to have sense. seven people. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. At least it's harder to charm seven people than one person, I guess. Uh, And Vox Machina also is invited to be on the council. Uh, And then we get four dragons flying toward the city. So, and that's your uh, well, setup for next season. You got the deli- glow right. bo- bo- bleh, globe, black globe uh, that's eating people, and you got four dragons on the way. Right, and it's and, it's great. And you also um, have Grog's sword situation. So we've got a lot of things like in in motion potentially, at least. 
Yeah, and that's the end of season one. Um, yeah. Sarah, we, we probably should have done this a little bit earlier because people got to the end. Um, maybe we should talk about who our favourite and least favourite characters are before we go into the Varied Falso and, and other sections. Like, who was your favourite of the Vox Machina? You know I love Vex. I do know you love Vex. <laughs> as, as I said, you know I love mean women. Um, and just, like, Vex. Like, Vex is just, like, a, a great vibe. Like, she's, like, she's very snarky. Uh, but she also, I think, has some amount of, you know, emotional intelligence. Uh, and I think I think she's great. Um, and I think she's too good for Percy, who is maybe my least favorite character. But as I said, I feel like they're setting them up as a couple. Uh, so Yeah, they're definitely laying groundwork for the two of them as a couple in this uh, in this season anyway. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think Vex is my favorite. I mean, it could be just because I, I, I really like Laura Bailey. I tell you who I am genuinely surprised by um and how much i like them is scanlan and grog mm-hmm. both of them yeah because they're both playing archetypes that i'm not necessarily a fan of in general like i already mm-hmm. said that i don't like percy and it's because of his steampunk like it's a great performance but i'm just not into that artificial stuff and i'm not into steampunk in general like it just does nothing for me it's not a genre mm-hmm. i like so when i see and I that i just don't in... like men who aren't in touch with their emotions so <laughs> exactly of course and as you know i'm a man who's always in touch with my emotions that emotion being anger and <laughs> and steampunk mostly <laughs> yeah and steampunk but uh <laughs> scanlon playing the uh bard um and joking and laughing and singing and stuff like this here that's the kind of character that can get old very quickly and i don't think yeah. scanlon does like yeah because they allow him to be a drinking into sex kind of stuff they they, they haven't tried to sterilize the character and i think maybe because the actor who plays him um the voice actor plays him is not that kind of guy himself like so it doesn't you know if that was being played by james franco Mm -hmm. right and everyone knows james franco's scumbaggy kind of character and a nasty dude you you wouldn't i wouldn't find it enjoyable but i find yeah. scanlon incredibly entertaining like even when he's going out of his way just to be silly and you know yeah overly sexualized i find that funny and then grog um there's another another uh podcast i tried listening to called critical hit and in critical hit they have an equivalent of grog and by the time i come around to the third episode I wanted to turn it off. I could not listen to it because it was all like, Grog like apples. Oh, you know, and everything was just like, I just, yeah, it's too much. Whereas Travis Willingham, uh, who's Grog's voice actor, I think he does a fantastic job. Yeah. Because it's written properly. Like, so a lot of this stuff would have been improvised. Mm-hmm. during the recording of the show and then put into the scripts for for the uh the tv show version um but a lot of the improvisation he does in character still allows grog to have small moments of where he shows that he's got he might not have a very high iq but he's very high eq like he's there for a lot yeah. of the characters to provide that little touch on the shoulder or that little moment where he's like, oh, no, I, I know what you're going through. And or yeah. even if I don't know what you're going through, like there's even scenes where he's talking to Keyleth and he's able to make Keyleth feel better about herself. Yeah. And he's still doing it in a, a, a slow way, like a stupid person's way. 
but it's in such a a warming and winning kind of character that I couldn't help but just go like, ah, oh, man, I love Grog. I want more Grog. Grog kills yeah. things, but also Grog nice, man. And I feel like that's like a lot of the, like a lot of what I really like. And like Scanlan too, that I feel like Scanlan has emotional depth, right? Like even though they don't shy away from him being this character who like really just basically wants to fuck, they also at the same time, like they have this like, mini kind of arc for him right where he's like wrestling with his own kind of identity and his uh you know sense of his his skills and his self-confidence and like i and i feel like as i said it's with both of those characters and i think all of those care all of the characters really are given an emotional depth in a way that i think can be really challenging especially when like trying to do that for seven characters and 12 and like 12 basically like 25 minute episodes uh, and I think they're really successful. And and I will add also, I really like Keyleth. Um, like I I find like I sometimes find frustrating the like also kind of a trope of like the I don't know, like the woman who's kind of perfect and actually can do everything but doesn't actually have any confidence in herself. Um, but I feel like she like plays it really well and like that you get this really kind of like, I don't know, like endearing sort of like awkwardness. Yeah. Um, that it, it kind of, like, it kind of works. Like, she feels like a real person. Um, and I, and I actually really, really liked her as a character and was, like, and actually was, like, both, like, actually rooting for, like, her and Vax to work it out. But I was also, like, I, like, was 100%, like, I get, like, well, you're real fucking annoyed at the thing, which is, like, another big trope, right? That it's, like, you're all about to die. And then, like, you know, somebody, like, confesses, like, you know I've always been in love with you. And she's, like, and at first she's, like, oh, and then she's, like, now? Really? Now is when you're going to fucking say this? It's like, yeah, right? Like, that's fucking ridiculous. Yeah, and, um, well, we can talk about it at the end when we're doing Estimado. I think the animation of Keelet might be the, the best in it. Well, actually, yeah. I think Pike's is the best. Because, uh, like, every time Pike is on screen, it feels like she was the first thing drawn because her eyes are drawn mm-hmm. to her character. But maybe it's because she's shining half the time. But, like, right. and, but they, they really made... Her, like Pike look like Ashley Johnson like it's, it's strangely yeah. weird like um, but Keelet is drawn in almost a slightly different style to the rest like so you know what chibi animation is where it's like the cute yeah, yeah. animation so she's drawn in a slightly more chibi style like and when, right. when she blushes like she gets the the anime style blush in her cheeks like with the lines drawn on it and stuff like this and I just think it's really nice like um, and her as you said her character feels like a full character in what could have been a very easy caricature. Yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, yeah we'll, we'll talk about it when we get to Estimadio, I suppose, later on. Um, but now you can tell us what this gets right and gets wrong. Now, this is what this is a weird one because we're talking about Dungeons and Dragons. Right. And we're going to find out what they got right and what they got wrong in a pure fantasy setting. But, yes. Sarah, tell us what they got right in the uh, very it falls so... So yeah, so as you're saying, like my standard disclaimer in fantasy in general is that like to some extent it's like you can do whatever the fuck you want, right? Like it's <clears> fantasy. <throat> it's not actually the real Middle Ages. Uh, so it's mostly, I would say, just like things that are like interesting in terms of how they like touch on or don't touch on medieval realities. Um, so a couple of things, uh, I guess I'll do like a couple of things that I think are like sort of I don't know, interesting, like, connections, at least, and then maybe get into a couple of things, and I'm like, eh, all right. 
So uh, first of all, I want to talk about books and magic, since it is a kind of big, you know, subplot, right, that you have this magic book that Delilah has, which is clearly crucial to her skills. And in the late medieval and early modern period, uh, we uh, certain it was very clear that there is something known, you know, a kind of learned magic, the magic that is practiced or attempted to be practiced uh, by educated elites is a very book-centered magical tradition. Uh, and that there are certain cities that, that gain a reputation as places that you would go to study magic. Uh, so the big ones in particular are Naples, Athens, and Toledo, but also uh, Salamanca and Krakow increasingly have also been places that have been looked at as really being kind of magical centers. Uh, and we learn, can learn a lot about these centers and about their essentially being these kind of like magic schools, either like, like a, you know, often kind of relatively informal, but like, but some cases even perhaps kind of somewhat more formally arranged uh, by actually looking at like surviving magical manuscripts and then kind of thinking about their provenance and transmission and why it is that they're kind of gathered in some of these particular places. Uh, the other thing that I think is cool about the learned magical tradition is that when we say learned, uh, we really mean learned uh, in terms of the yeah, this kind of book tradition. So not only are we talking about the basics of literacy, which is obviously a skill that not everyone in the Middle Ages had, though, you know, elites increasingly by the time we get into the late Middle Ages, uh, wealthy people would typically have at least some basic literacy, but that it's very much a multilingual tradition so that there are books of magic in Arabic, Hebrew, and Latin are the kind of big languages, and gradually we see them being kind of available in different vernacular traditions as well. Uh, but that it really is, a, you know, a tradition that is very kind of linked with the sort of these sort of elite educated languages, including the language, as I said, like Hebrew and Arabic, which are skills that well, kind of language skills that relatively few people would have in, say, Western or Central Europe. Uh, Sarah, just um, when you say magic. Uh, yeah. What sort of things were representative of magic in in real medieval history? So in terms of the things, at least, that people, like, had books where they tried yes. to do things, um, obviously not necessarily speaking toward, like, the whether they could actually do them. Yeah, no, that, that's what I meant. Obviously, magic is not real, Sarah. We, this is, shh, uh, don't tell Chris Angel, but... So the thing that I think is also really interesting about medieval magic is that the the boundaries between magic and religion and science uh, and medicine are actually quite blurred. So some would be things that would be like healing related would be part of medieval magic. Uh, there are also on the kind of like dark art sense, like necromancy, actually. So like the kinds of things that Delilah is doing, it's like, yeah, no, that that's the kind of thing that would be represented in medieval magical texts. Uh, we also, as we kind of move into the late Middle Ages and the later Middle Ages and the early modern period, uh, the alchemical tradition, um, which is also really important and uh, like as something that is to some extent the kind of forerunner of modern chemistry. Um, uh, but that, you know, there is uh, there is a kind of really, really interesting like set of documents that, you know, set of texts that are essentially people like trying to kind of change the world around them. Uh, there is also a lot of stuff about like summoning demons and making deals with demons and getting them to do your bidding. So, yeah, a bunch of different things. Yeah. Um, just the way you're describing it makes me think that um, these early books on magic were like uh, modern day uh, Ouija boards. So it's like stuff that obviously wasn't going to work and is clearly messing around and completely fictional. But um, 
Ouija boards is, is typically a, a middle class uh, white person thing to play with. And the way you're describing these nobles with plenty of money who are yeah. like, oh, I'm going to go up and I got a book on magic. Let's come up and, and try some of the spells from my book on magic. Like it just it just gives me that vibe as you're describing it. It's like this isn't real. Nobody actually believes this is real. But isn't it fun to think that we could do it? And, you know, and there seemed, I mean, there seemed to have been people that really kind of devoted a lot of their life, though, certainly to, like, a trying, at least, to do this sort of thing. And certainly into at least, like, reading a lot of these books and, like, amassing a lot of the, a lot of knowledge about these, like, ostensible traditions, um, even if, you know, they're not probably, like, accomplishing necromancy, um, presumably. <laughs> Um, but yes, and I, if you're interested in learning more about this, uh, Benedict Lang's book, Unlocked Books, is really interesting, especially for thinking about these traditions in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, and also the, uh, the Rutledge History of Magic is a good overview. Uh, and that also has an interesting chapter about uh, magic and gender. And one of the other I, things that I think is really interesting is that, so first of all, as I've talked about many times on this podcast, uh, you know, the Middle Ages is not the period mainly associated with witch persecution. That would be the early modern period. But also that magic in the Middle Ages is actually very often associated with men. And especially when we're talking about this kind Kind of learned magic. It's something that is, I would say, not exclusively, but mostly seen as magic that is practiced by by elite men. And and I do actually think like it's cool that in the context of this world where we have a very different gender system, right? We don't have a system where and we don't have the kinds of gender inequalities that, that you do in the real Middle Ages or for that matter, like modern United States in particular. Mm -hmm. Um that like, you know, in this context, right, we have like a woman who is the magic user and who is very much a participant in this tradition of learned magic, which I think is cool. Yeah, it's excellent. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's something that I think is well done. Um, I'll also just note a couple of like fun facts uh, so that the ziggurat is uh, a shrine that is mostly associated with ancient Mesopotamia and not the Middle Ages per se. But I think there is like a sense, right, that this is supposed to be some kind of like magical thing that is like outside the norm and that isn't like part of this setting inherently. Um, so I think that's a kind of interesting point of connection. Uh, the other thing that I think is fun as a uh, kind of, I don't know, accuracy to some extent, is that there are plenty of medieval stories about the undead, uh, including some murderous corpses who have similarities to vampires and zombies. Uh, however, I also find it cool that uh, the, the medieval undead were not always just murderous, they uh, they could also be quite pious. So I wanted to share a couple of uh, fun stories in fact, about the medieval undead so from... The, the zombies yes. would come back and also be super religious. Yes. So I want to share a couple of stories, um, which are from the writings of a, uh, a bishop. So his... Uh, sorry, I need to pull out his name. Um, Bishop Thietmar of Merseburg, uh, who's writing in the early 11th century. Uh, and so this is coming from an article called Revenants, Resurrection, and Burnt Sacrifice by Nancy Cacciola. And so he talks about these uh, 
you know, kind of religious dead, uh, which he kind of then links, in fact, to like reminding the truth of the resurrections that he writes, so that no one who is faithful to Christ may doubt the future resurrection of the dead, but may proceed to the joy of blessed immortality zealously and through holy desire. I shall confide to certain things that I have verified as true and which occurred in the town of Welsleben when it was rebuilt after its destruction. The priest of that church used to sing matins there at the first blush of dawn, but when he arrived at the cemetery for the dead, he saw in it a great multitude, a great multitude of them, making offerings to a priest who was standing at the doors to the sanctuary. At first he stopped in his tracks, but then strengthening himself with the sign of the Holy Cross, he tremblingly went through the whole crowd to reach the oratory without acknowledging any of them. One of them, a woman whom he knew well and who had died recently, asked him what he was doing there. After he told her why he had come, she returned that everything had already been taken care of by them, and also that he did not have long to live. He reported this to his neighbors, and it turned out to be true. That's crazy. So that yeah, we've got these like ghosts who are having having a good time at church, uh, and then another one which then has a uh, a slightly more disturb. So that at least I think uh, already has a bit of a kind of disturbing note that they make sure to kind of remind him that you know oh, you know you're you're going to be with us uh, in not too long, but uh, even more disturbing. So we have this additional story. That he says, the next day I told my niece Brigitte about this other story and I received this reply from her. During the 80 years or more when the great man Baldrick held the Holy See of Utrecht, he renovated a church that had fallen into ruin from old age in a place called Deventer. He consecrated it and commended it to the care of one of his priests. One day, when the priest was going to the church very early in the morning, he saw dead people in the church and the cemetery making offerings, and he heard them singing. The priest informed the bishop immediately. He was ordered by the bishop to sleep in the church. But the next night, he was thrown out by the dead along with the bed he lay on. Terrified on account of what had happened, you know, you can't blame him, course, the priest yeah. again complained to his superior about these things, but the bishop ordered that he should cross himself with saints' relics and be sprinkled with holy water, but on no account cease guarding the church. The priest, following the bishop's command, tried to sleep in the church again, but he was struck with terror and so lay wide awake and watchful. And behold, at the accustomed hour, the dead arrived. They picked him up, they placed him upon the altar, and they incinerated his body with fire down to a fine ash. Wow. When the bishop heard about this, he ordered a three-day fast to be held for the sucker of the dead man's soul. I think maybe he should have held a fast to like for like forgiveness for him for making this dude sleep in this church. So, Yeah. <laughs> That's I. I did. I'd never heard any of this. I mean, the only the only zombie story I know is is a very famous one. It's in um, it's in a book in uh that part of the Bible that you guys don't have. Um, it's the book of Matthew, I believe, and it it explains how this one man died on a Friday. Um, he was actually killed by his own people, strangely enough. Um, and then uh, and then three days later, he rose as a zombie. Uh, and you know he was a very holy zombie um, <laughs> in fact possibly the most holy of zombies you could say i mean i will say i actually have a lot of thoughts about how jesus jesus is a vampire jesus uh is an it's undead being who wants everyone to drink his blood 
Yeah, but that's that would be a reverse vampire. Well, yeah, but, you know. I mean, I also have a lot of thoughts about how, like, vampires are kind of Jesus. Uh, and also, like, everybody is, like, engaging in the, like, as a cat, as a good Catholic, you're, like, engaging in the vampiric practice of, like, drinking blood. But also how, like, Jews are described in ways that are, like, fundamentally vampiric. Uh, and that they are accused of, like, drinking Christian blood, essentially. So, any, I have a lot of thoughts about... It's not just drinking Christian blood. Don't forget that you make your matzah out of blood, too. Um, the most that's, important that's what thing... gives it its That's what gives it its cardboard flavor. <laughs> matzah would be a lot better if there was a little blood in that. <laughs> the most important thing I've learned in this episode is that Sarah F. Decker is such a true blood fan, is that she's trying to force it onto Christian religion. <laughs> You're just like y'all are Sukhi. the ones who drink. Y'all are the ones who drink blood as part of your religious practice. You drink yeah, the blood of really your good. god. It tastes really good. <laughs> we ate this flesh too. Like I mean, I don't, what what more do you want? Like, yeah, it's, it's y'all delicious. are cannibalistic zombies and vampires. Yeah, and just to remind <laughs> Jesus faith. of what happened to him, we we carry around like little, little effigies of him nailed <laughs> to a cross. Uh huh. Like, here you yeah. go, Jesus. Do you remember this happened? Oh. Um, but then, of course, in turn, right, as vampire mythology develops, uh, there's this idea, right, that the cross is what's supposed to, like, ward them off. Um, you know, also interesting in that, like, the, you know, kind of very much also, like, fits in again to how, like, anti-Judaism and vampire mythology are linked in that, like, Jews are presented as having this kind of, like, hatred and fear of Christian of like Christians and Christianity. Hold on a second, Sarah, but they can't actually be linked that hard because I have seen you inside Christian churches, inside Catholic churches. Like. I mean, I didn't say I was a vampire or a very good Jew. So wait, hold on a second. Now that I think about it, anytime we have been in the same building, I have had to invite you in first, and I just sizzle a little bit when I come into contact with that crucifix. Yeah, but then also you are way less likely to um, burn to a crisp in the sun than I am. So True, yeah. true. You know, but yeah, so I, I think there are a lot of like interesting intersections between uh, like vampire mythology and like Christian religious practice and also uh, Christian traditions of anti-Judaism. Uh, so yeah. Um, so yeah, so there are certainly... Uh, ideas about undead and about vampires in a medieval context and How did so we get to that <laughs> jesus is a, a vampire yeah yeah as he should it's just a normal just a normal conversation to have about how jesus is a vampire how is that not a normal conversation <laughs> uh so the now i want to also talk about a couple of things that i would say they like sort of get wrong uh <gasps> Yeah, or at least that, like, do not map on to medieval realities. Uh, so two things. So first of all, uh, in a kind of mixed bag, there is the question of essentially medieval groups of mercenaries. So mercenaries certainly were a everyday part of kind of military landscapes in the Middle Ages because medieval rulers rarely had standing armies. So if you need to gather a military force, you've got to start from scratch. And mercenary companies are a popular option because it, you know, you can just pay them as opposed to, you know, wrangling with your lords to get them to give the amount of men that they're supposed to give and all of that. However, that means they require money. And, uh, 
getting money to fund wars is something that is also a uh, constant challenge for medieval monarchs. Mm-hmm. And it also means that mercenaries are certainly, you know, known for their lack of loyalty, right? If they're not, you know, you're paying them, if they're not being paid, if you no longer can afford to pay them, they might leave, they might start pillaging the countryside, and they might switch yeah. sides. Um, so, you know, this is a big issue. And actually and pillaging plus- the country, yeah. Was that common enough in wars? Like that, you know, we we all think of uh, we all think of, for example, um, Braveheart, where they hired the gallowed lasses, and then on the the morning of the battle, they swap sides to to fight with the Scottish. Like, would that be something that has happened in the past? Like, actually, mercenary companies changed mid battle or walked off mid battle, perhaps. It wasn't common, I would say, but it's not unheard of. And it certainly is something that at least I would say is like, it's not something that happens frequently, but it is something that is a kind of potential threat, which is something that kind of you have to worry about in a case where maybe you're not able to afford to pay your mercenaries. The thing that I would say is a kind of more common actual problem with mercenaries is that especially when you're not pairing mercenaries, but honestly, sometimes even if you are, you know, they're around. They're not, like, from here. They don't give a shit about your people. There's a good chance your mercenaries are going to, like, pillage the countryside. Uh, so in the Hundred Years' War, this is a big problem in particular because, you know, the there's already the English pillaging shit. And then the French have mercenary companies who, like, when they get bored, they also are, like, fucking up the countryside. So, uh, you know, there are a number of, uh, you know, problems with hiring mercenaries. So... Yeah. I will say that while on the one hand, the reliance on mercenaries is realistic, the fact that because ultimately, right, the mercenaries are our heroes, which makes a lot of sense in a sort of D&D context, you know, you basically then have mercenaries, which are like a lot nicer than mercenaries are in real life, that they like very kind of quickly make the transition to being like, ethical people who are going to do something and like yes they want to get paid but also ultimately they're doing something because they think it's the right thing to do yeah it's it's interesting because in a lot of contexts in in modern society describing somebody as a mercenary is a negative thing it's it's absolutely a a sign of a lack of morals or a lack of loyalty loyalty said yeah yeah and so you know and so because you have and i think like it's like a standard feature of dungeons and dragons which we'll talk more about shortly that you have essentially like mercenary companies because that kind of justifies like adventures which involve a lot of battles is being basically mercenaries Mm -hmm. uh and so you have this whole system which is kind of glorifying to some extent the mercenary as this kind of I guess, like, figure that is, like, potentially, you know, we, we, I don't want to get into the, like, alignment stuff, but is that, like, potentially chaotic, but that, like, fundamentally often, I would say, I don't know, not not exclusively, but that, like, often, and especially I'd say in this show, right, like, they ultimately, like, don't want to have them just be, like, horrible people who are just murdering, like, civilians for no good reason, that yeah. that, like, is not the direction that I think, like, most D&D games go in, where you just, like, murder people in the countryside for fun. Um, yeah. Because you're you're essentially, like, even people who want to play chaotic or unlawful, uh, I suppose maybe we would want to describe it, is that most people who are playing a Dungeons & Dragons game are going to want to play the 
be the good guys. Like nobody wants to be the bad guys. Right. Yeah. So so there is some kind of amount of that. Um, and then the last thing I'm going to say in this section uh, on the murdering people for funsies track is uh, that this is actually a big pet peeve of mine, which I have talked about before in this podcast, is the lack of realism in a lot of medieval and fantasy media about essentially what conquest looks like. And so in particular, Whitestone and the Briarwoods takeover of Whitestone makes no sense to me. They've taken over. The cunt, there's, this place is desolate. Everything is gray. It seems like there's like 12 people left alive. How are they gaining any, any income from this property? Because like it's the land seems completely unable to have any kind of agricultural production. And even if it could, if anyone could do anything, it's like there's like nobody left to pay taxes. Um, uh, in addition to that, it's like, you know, you're just like haphazardly killing people. It's like, how are you even like building shit still? Like, what are like, what are you doing? You have no population left. Uh, and this is very much like, you know, as I said, not that people aren't shitty, but that like people are also like pragmatic when they are conquering, when they are conquering a place like the Briarwoods have done, that they have a, that, you know, they have a conquest, essentially. Yeah. You want it to be profitable? I mean, you you want you want to get something out of having conquered this place, right? Like, even if to some extent you're like, you know, using, you know, exploiting its resources, you also want it to like continue to exist um, and you don't want to kill the entire population and make it like completely useless for basically everything. Because um, as I said, even if it's like residuum is the main thing they want, right? It's like, I don't even know how you'd be mining residuum. You have no people. Yeah. So uh, so this is like a big pet peeve of mine is that it just doesn't actually make sense the way this conquest seems to have been carried out. It's just a level of... Uh, brutality and desolation which seems uh deeply impractical yeah it's a in the um in a lot of david gemmel novels that they, they will there's scenes where they're going through like a village like a farming village or, or a mining village and say a war breaks out and there will be in fact i think of at least four of his novels where the people in the village just up and leave and then later on you'll find them hiding in the woods hiding in the mountains and the main characters be coming through like why don't you fight and they're like it's much easier just to hide up here and then once the war is finished we'll come back down because as you said whoever wins the war is still going to need somebody to work the farms they're still going to yeah. need somebody to think so they hide up there to avoid like if they see people who are wearing like soldiers uniforms they are less likely to break into a village and just start killing and raping everybody mm -hmm. because they're probably soldiers but if they see just people in uh chain mail with no tabards identifying them as soldiers as you said as mercenary companies they could be around doing anything so they hide and wait until the war is finished and then go back down and do the stuff and i always find that like really interesting in, in yeah. the novels and it's nice to find out that uh it's actually rooted in realism that yeah your average peasant is not it doesn't really matter who's in charge of them as yeah. long as the taxes aren't too egregious, like, they'll, they'll yeah. just farm the land. And to some extent, you know, I mean, I, that's actually one of the things that I find really interesting in Monty Python and the Holy Grail is there's this bit where they're like, we have a king 
who are you? And it's like, to some extent that, especially in an early medieval context is kind of realistic. Like you, it doesn't really matter. Like you, like it doesn't, like you don't really care who's in charge of the country. Like a lot of these like dynastic civil wars, they portray them as something that like everybody has an opinion. And it's like, most people just don't care. Yeah, like, exactly. It, it's like you just want like you would like there to not be war because war is kind of fundamentally destructive. But you don't really care who's in charge at the end because it's probably going to like your life is probably not going to change a lot. Yeah. And even now with uh, with modern politics, you, you come across a lot of people who talk about how it's not worth voting. You're like, it doesn't really matter who I vote in. Like my life's not going to change. And those people are dumb is, and incorrect. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying is the problem with that is perhaps if you are in that protected class that manages to not have your life change all that much different and um, depending on who's in charge there are an awful lot of people whose lives do change because of who's right. in charge yeah right yes so yeah um that is so that is i guess i'd say kind of what they got right and wrong but now we can get into it's, uh, a kind of particular event or phenomenon that is linked to this in another section, which, uh, what is what is that section called? It's called Historia et Veritas, which I believe is like the true story, Sarah? History and truth. Mm. Yeah. So... And here I want to talk about uh, Dungeons and Dragons as an example of medievalism. So first of all, what is Dungeons and Dragons? Uh, It's a fantasy role-playing game that was designed by Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson and first uh, kind of made, uh, kind of published, I guess, because like, right, there's like, there's books, there's like, uh, there's like, uh, I think there is like, there is like a board that you can use, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's so basically, like basically, I think um, if you buy a star set, so again, I've never played. I, I've only ever seen it. So if you watch something like Stranger Things or all this stuff when they're playing D&D, you can have like a grid shaped board where the person who's the dungeon master can draw the map of what it's going to be. It's like, here's a tree. This here would be hard to traverse ground. So like if you can normally move 20 feet. If you're on hard to traverse ground, you can only move 10 feet in your turn. Stuff like that. So basically, there is a board you can move your characters around on. I think it was grid-based. And then you've got, like, different characters and figures that you can put into it. So first of all, the first question is, uh, how medieval is Dungeons & Dragons? Uh, So there are certainly things that are drawing on the medieval past. So, for example, you have... uh, which I'll talk about more in a moment, that you have essentially these uh, races of people that, uh, you know, you would uh, choose which of these races you belong to as a player in Dungeons and Dragons. So, and some of these certainly come from medieval mythology and literature. So certainly dwarves and elves. Uh, the other, I think, fun example on this front is uh, the the tieflings, who are sort of like part demon. Uh, that Merlin, actually, according to some legends, is uh, born of a uh, a union between a uh, human woman and a demon. Ugh. So Mer- Merlin is really a tiefling. Yeah, he definitely comes across that way in the Merlin TV show. Yeah, yeah. 
But I think the dragon. Oh no, the dragon wasn't his dad. I, we, we figured out who his dad was. <laughs> I'm still yeah. like I, I've like I've like lost the point where I'm like, what was my head and What was the actual thing that got but we got revealed? The way he Berlin. treats him is like dragon dad. Yeah. Um. So yes. So uh. Yeah. So you know we have that as a connection. Um. I would say the. So then we also have the like classes that you have in D and D. So that when you are creating a character, you would choose in addition to being a you know a half elf or a dwarf or whatever you choose to be. You would also choose a class that you would belong to, and that's things like you know ranger or rogue or druid, um, etc. And those, I would say, you know, are mostly kind of vague. Those, you know, except for except for the fact that some of them are just kind of like things that exist in the world. I would say most of them aren't really distinctly medieval, uh, with the possible exception of druids as drawing on a kind of specific like early medieval context. Yeah. Uh, one of the things also is that like you have... Uh, you know, that, like, your various, like, clerics, like, are very much also participating in, like, military things, right? Like, they're also people who, like, you have, like, that are useful to you in battle, which is, like, not the case for most uh, monks in a medieval context. Yeah, and then, like, just if we go back to um, races for a second, where there, like, was there historical reasons for people to believe in dwarves? Um... I mean, not like, I mean, it like shows up in kind of like, um, like Norse mythology in particular. Yeah. Um, I otherwise like, and I think like people like then like know the difference between like dwar like dwarves in a mythical context versus like actual people with dwarfism, which like people know exists. Like they, like people seem to have been aware of the fact that like those are different. Yeah. Um, so I would say like, yeah, there's not like, it's, it's all kind of mythological traditions. Um, and especially because like a lot of those mythological traditions are things that are pre-Christian, but that a lot of what we know about it is coming from Christian texts. It's sort of hard to tell exactly what like belief in those figures and like those creatures looked like. Yeah. So So, just like the idea of the elves, for example, like over here in Ireland for, a thousand years or whatever we had the she who were mm-hmm. like fairies and linked to the elves depending on which descriptions you listen to they were either like dryad small little creatures running around in the woods getting up the mischief or whatever or powerful warrior men that would actually come and attack right. you and stuff like this so depending on which version of the of the stories you're listening to it could be either one of them some of them used magic some of them didn't but all of them had this connection to living in the woods and living in the trees mm-hmm. and connection with nature like was that was that spread throughout the rest of like europe for example this this idea of people living in the woods who were more connected with nature than the rest of us uh, my sense is that it's something that is uh, more, it's like something that shows up in a lot of kind of Northwestern European mythologies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's kind of not quite the, like, it's not quite the same necessarily kind of everywhere in Europe. Um, but, but that, yeah, it is something that I would like, there's a lot of, I would say, kind of connections between um, the kind of like polytheistic mythologies of Northwestern Europe. Uh, and then there's also certainly like, there's other 
similarities to some extent. Like, I don't know, like how different really are they from like dryads, I guess, in, um, you know, and obviously like satyrs are sort of like a different thing, but there's obviously are like these ideas of like other people who kind of like live in the woods and are sort of like magical in some ways, right? In like Greek mythological tradition, I guess as well. Yeah. Um, so that I would say like elves specifically in terms of like what they look like and like how that and like, or like what, how that is thought of, I would say that's mostly coming out of a Northwestern context, but that it's like the, the idea of there being like assorted like spirits or beings that might be like associated with the woods or with nature is uh, something that you see in other contexts as well. All right, cool. Um, yeah. and then just with, when you were talking about classes, so the class that I always associate most with a medieval thing which you you probably you probably won't in fact you probably shit all over it there um is the paladins because anytime i read about a paladin uh which is like a church knight a warrior who is versed with god it just reads as templar to me like every single time i see them represented on screen and in the trailer for that D D movie that's what the paladin looks like a really good strong powerful warrior who believes in god and can have god on his side to defend him like um so did people actually believe that templar knights had magical church powers no um (laughs) so essentially what it is is that like the so actually the term the origin the origins of the term paladin uh, is actually associated with the court of Charlemagne um, and that they're like referred to in the uh, the Chanson de Roland, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so people who are referred to as uh, as paladins and like the idea is essentially that they're, they're not magic. They're just like the really great, like, sh- like the like perfect examples of like righteous chivalry, essentially, I would say more than like magic per se. Uh, mm-hmm. The Templars are a little more complicated in that like, when they are put on trial and the order is disbanded, they are accused in a very kind of negative way of magical practice. But I would say probably most people would say like the whole, like all of that is like, maybe they had some slightly like quirky rituals, but basically it's all bullshit um, as a, you know, way for basically the King of France to get out of paying them all the money he owes them. Um, Typical French. I mean, typical specifically Philip the fourth of France who did this to like, the Templars and the Jews and the Lombards um, that like, that was just kind of like his, his mode um, was just to like fuck over people that he owed money. So he didn't have to pay them back. <laughs> um, You're excommunicated now. Yeah. So, so that I would say like, there is this idea, right. Of a kind of righteous warrior who has this connection to the church, but that like, it's not linked with like magic and the way it is with D and D. And so, and that's part and because right. That, D&D very much has uh, links to medievalism in a kind of historical sense, but I would say really is very much more of a like fantasy medievalism to a much greater extent that it's really kind of drawing on the real medieval past. And uh, I understand this is apparently a controversial thing to say because Gygax in particular for years was like, oh no, I didn't copy everything from Lord of the Rings. But like, it's kind of just copied from Lord of the Rings, like to the extent that apparently the Tolkien estate like threatened to sue them for a copyright violation and they had to like make certain changes. So they're like, now they're called halflings before they were called hobbits. And the Tolkien estate was like, you can't fucking do that. Um, I think also like they had something called like a Belrog, um, which they changed the name to. Um, so like, which they like changed the name to something else. So, you know, um, and that is very much like one of those things, which I think is interesting in the kind of tradition of fantasy medievalism is that 
Tolkien, I mean, so Tolkien, first of all, I would say like, so Tolkien has a lot of medieval knowledge in that he himself is a scholar of medieval literature. And that's clearly something that he's drawing on in his world building for Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. But that at the same time, he's, I would say, like, flexible with it as like a good fantasy author probably should be right, like, like, a lot of things aren't necessarily a kind of pure one to one correspondence at two medieval realities. Um, yeah. you know, and, and like Tolkien also like Tolkien knew perfectly well that they didn't have potatoes, uh, in the middle ages, but like at the same time, like the hobbits are kind of like, you know, like English, like past, like pastoral, like English country people in the 19th century. So like they get potatoes. Um, <laughs> so, so like, I think there is a lot of that, right. Is that then it get that kind of fantasy medievalism often gets kind of brought into other things and is and influences other things that don't necessarily kind of pair that with as much of a kind of deep medieval knowledge as Tolkien had. Yeah. Um, and, um, and to the best of my knowledge, like I, I don't think that was a priority for Gygax, which is fine um, that I don't think he was like desperate to have it connect to medieval realities necessarily yeah the balrog is called a balor in um in D D, and they are like if you look one up there sarah it it's a balrog like it's a balrog it's, it's right down to the whip of fire like it's yeah yeah um yeah balor maybe you could even pronounce that word um yeah so i'm trying to think uh so in in D, you've got mages you've got uh, rogues which are you know, like thieves and sneaking around in the night um you got your paladins uh and you get druids uh archers obviously yeah we get there um are there is there anything else that from from dungeons and dragons that steps that stands out to you as like this actually could be based in some sort of medieval fact So I would say, like, in some ways, like, there's not, there's not a ton that I guess I would say really feels, like, specifically medieval, right? Like, it's like, okay, yeah, like, there are warriors, there are these kind of, like, roguish figures that certainly have, like, connections to medieval literature. I would say, to some extent, maybe the kind of, the thing, actually, I guess I would say that feels the most medieval in a lot of ways about Dungeons and Dragons is the the kind of fundamental quest structure which is very important in medieval literature but the other thing i think that's interesting is that medieval literature also um very often has like a kind of series of vignettes which kind of maybe do or don't kind of add up into like a clear like unified story and that's quite common and like it's quite common to kind of have these stories which are like you have this adventure and then you have this other adventure. And that is very much kind of what like longstanding D and D campaigns sort of are, right. That like you have an adventure and then you like finish that kind of arc and then, you know, you continue and you kind of do something else. Uh, And and that is, I think something connected to each other. Yeah. 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 And like, but it's like, it's interconnected insofar as that you have like characters, like that's kind of what like the like Arthurian legend tradition sort of is. Right. Is it's like a series of basically like, D&D arcs involving like different knight like knights of the round yeah. table they're all part of uh, the group but he, this is what Percival's up to today nothing yeah. interesting <laughs> so so I would say like it it very much has like I think it has like not a lot of connections uh, except for the most basic to medieval realities but some interesting connections I think to medieval literary traditions yeah well, that's yeah. cool uh, yeah. And then last question. Uh, did P- 
people run around like or is there any evidence that children or adults pretended to be magicians or anything like that like because like that's effectively what like it's ro- it's called a role-playing game so mm-hmm. we are taking on the role of uh, it's like oh, i'm oliver i'm the mage right um and my character is called uh dax Lachar, right or whatever i would happen to call myself if it was a mage i would never play a mage and you know? i would always play <laughs> i want to play somebody who's gonna chop people up um but is there any evidence that that in the medieval period or even in the early modern period that people were going around like playing that sort of game that sort of role-playing adventure kind of thing uh i don't believe so no i mean i I, you know in terms of like traveling mages specifically like there are certainly like people who claim to be magic users who like go to different like courts um or to and like you know to basically like try and get somebody to give them money um, so there certainly like are, you know, there obviously are like people are traveling around. Like that is actually one of the other things that I think is interesting is that it portrays a kind of medieval inspired past where people are very mobile, which I do think is cool in that people were in fact kind of more mobile and traveled more in the real medieval past than most people often assume they did. Um, but that, uh, you know, like I... I mean, you know, people, I, but people usually have like a reason for traveling. Like people aren't just doing it like for, for fun. And like, although, you know, and people to the extent that, you know, people, I'm sure there are people who like, you know, claimed that they had in fact real magical skills who believed it. There's also, I'm sure people <laughs> who like claimed they had magical skills and were just trying to use it as a way to get somebody to give them money. Um, but that it is, I would say kind of more often about like, trying to you know like trying to accomplish something as opposed to like you know a kind of like role-playing adventure cool cool yeah but there is like you know but i guess like actually like one of the things that i think is like like cool though is i guess like to some extent i guess you probably could argue actually that like don quixote is sort of a best sort of like um a couple of people who are basically doing like an i like irl tnd game yeah that are basically like role-playing as like as like knights on a quest um and like going around and like doing a bunch of things with like varying varying levels of success i i would say i would say almost no success mostly now um you know depending on your definition of success (laughs) i guess i I usually define it as succeeding um (laughs) which i'm not i'm not sure if, if they ever did uh sarah that's awesome um i didn't realize there was any sort of historical uh links or reality at all to to um dungeons and dragons so it's nice to find that there's there is some of it there yeah even if it is you know relatively tenuous but there are some kind of cool connections and you know and i think it is also just interesting in terms of you know as a medievalist right thinking about the ways that people engage with medievalism uh so um in the uh the cambridge companion to medievalism is a kind of interesting you know resource on this and uh one scholar in there daniel klein has an article where he uh, talks about D&D as well as, uh, you know, LARPing and uh, uh, some kinds of like, you know, d- like video games. And he, t- and he kind of uses the term participatory medievalism. Mm. Uh, and I think it is interesting to think about the ways in which 
a lot of the the media that we talk about on this podcast, right, is things often that people watch and are exposed to, you know, in terms of, you know, movies, etc. But that D&D is really a way in which people kind of create their own, like normal people who don't have enough money to like fund making a movie, um, like create their own medieval inspired universes. Um, which is sort of interesting. On the one hand, there is like ways in which like certain kinds of nostalgia for the medieval past uh, can be problematic. I'll note also, and I'll like link to this in the show notes, that there have definitely been some uh, some interesting work critiquing like the races in D and D as having like racist overtones. Um, and like certain things about like the, like that, you know, the, like the, there's an interesting piece, um, by Paul Sturdivant, uh, like talking about like the barbarians as like on the one hand drawing on like Viking mythology, but on the other hand drawing on some like really kind of problematic, uh, tropes about indigenous peoples. So, you know, so there's definitely like some ways in which like certain kinds of like nostalgia for the medieval past are often linked to some like problematic ideas about race and ethnicity in particular. And D&D is very much like not immune from that. Um, But, you know, then on the flip side, like, I think it is really, you know, really awesome that like we do have something, something like this where, you know, I mean, so the... um, main people who are like putting this together are I believe all white to the best of my knowledge if I'm incorrect about that by sincere apologies please somebody correct me um but based on my like brief looking into them on wikipedia at least um I think they're all white people um you can you can cut out part of that hedging um but, uh, you know, but that like, it seems at least like somebody, you know, kind of thought about like putting some effort into, you know, hiring a somewhat more uh, diverse cast for the other characters. And also like, it seems like there's, you know, kind of some effort at least to kind of be be thoughtful about things like, uh, you know, like one of the things that always is like kind of a little like eh, about like, I mean, Lord of the Rings for that matter, and also D&D, right, is that there is this kind of idea that like, well, there are these races. And if you belong to this race, then you're like this. Yeah. Um, and, and I, and it still is kind of like, D like, this show still like, because it is a D&D campaign is like, to some extent has like elements of that, but I don't think it's doing that, like to quite the extent as some things that I've seen. Yeah, so. exactly. It's much more realistic in that tense than, um, as you said, Lord of the Rings, which has like one black person in it. Right, and they and they at least like they all they all seem like people. Like it doesn't seem like okay, well these people are elves, and that means that they are like this, and this is their personality. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah. So I think there is at least like some some thoughtfulness about that in uh, in this series. Uh, Sarah. Yes. I think we should move on to the next section. Well, is it your podcast now that you uh, decided? Oh, yeah. I forgot about <laughs> next that. section. <laughs> Let's do that again. You do that. It is time to move on to the next section. Yes. I'm just giving you a hard time. Fabula Nostra. Okay, I'm going to be honest and say that I 100% half-assed this because I got, like, in research rabbit holes on, like, vampires. Um, 
and then was like, oh, it's time to record. So uh, my main thing is that, so, you know, this this is a very Percy-centric arc, and uh, I'm not as enthusiastic about Percy. Uh, so I want more Vex, and I, I guess it's just more like a hope for the next season, is that I'm hoping that with, like, it looks like we're getting a lot more dragons, at least uh, early in the season, perhaps. Yeah, uh, I'm, it looks like. Yeah, so I'm hoping that she'll play a really, like, central role, especially with, like, I... I guess I'd like to see if she can, like, make the I get a migraine when dragons show up a little more useful. Yeah. I guess. Um, in that it, like, it, like, it was useful insofar as, like, that's how they figured out, right, that there was somebody who was, like, a double agent on the council. Um, it was because she, like, got her dragon migraine when she was just, like, with the council as a group. But I... I would like to see it, you know, continue, like, I don't know, continue to or like be somewhat more useful in future, future arcs, because I think she's very cool. Yeah. Um, and I think you now it's been a while since I listened to campaign one, but um, I'm fairly certain that's pretty much how the campaigns go, is that each of the individual arcs in between kind of focuses on somebody else's history a little bit more. Um, so there's definitely a Scanlan one. There's definitely yeah. one about Vax and Vex. So uh, you're right. Like this could be the one that leads in directly in with Vax and Vex and, and their history. Um, in particular, because their parents were killed by dragons, so it would make sense. Um, yeah. Like I, I'm definitely down for it. I would love to see a Vex centric. Yeah, sir. I would love to. I'd love to pay more attention to Vex. Now, as for me, uh, I went in the other direction. I looked at what could D&D give the world and I thought to myself right what if we had an action star who was secretly even though he's a great big action star Mm -hmm. a D&D fan and what if he had like this incredibly interesting story arc in his own D&D campaign where and I want you to listen okay right witches exist in this world and it's actually the real world and mm-hmm. the witches back in the 1800s or whatever, and he comes from this family of witch hunters, right? So he's going around and he's okay. hunting these witches and he's killing them. And then one of them puts a curse on that he can't die until he kills a particular number of witches or whatever. And then jump cut. We're in the modern day. And our hero is like the coolest cool guy who ever did cool guy stuff. Driving cars, going around with crosses. He's a big churchy guy. He's bald, dude? He's bald, yeah. He's big, muscular, bald dude, right? And he is, in the modern world, killing anything that comes across the witch. There's very few of them left. There's no one else in his, you know, even family left alive, obviously, because it's like jumped 500 years into the future. Um, but basically, he's going around the modern world and he's like uh, killing witches and stuff. And um, yeah, and that's what I would like to do. It's like a D&D kind of story based around some sort of big, muscular Hollywood actor kind of dude. Yeah. Like a Vin Diesel type? Yeah, Vin, oh, yeah, bang on. Yeah, Vin Diesel. He would be perfect for this. Are you just describing the plot of the movie The Last Witch Hunter starring Vin Diesel? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe and I'm you plagiarize. It's a potential future episode, Sarah. Maybe. Maybe. Or you're plagiarizing your Fabula Nostra, uh, which uh, is penalized very, very uh, seriously. 
Your your one was, I hope we get more Vex in the next season. I half-assed. That's di- I, I always tell my students I'd rather you half-ass than plagiarize. But we could do Fine. The Last Witch Hunter in the future. Well, do it with Baxter or somebody. <laughs> I don't want to do it. It's, I saw it once and I do not want to ever watch it again. Um, but yeah, that's that's. I'm sure I can find and- somebody who really wants to watch like a dumb movie with Vin Diesel. <laughs> I guarantee you there would be people who would out there <laughs> there are always people who are fans of that guy um, Sarah maybe we should talk about, about our ratings and uh, what is the section should... called Estimatio <laughs> well I realised I was starting the sections again I gotta stop <laughs> them um, but I, I'll go first this time because it says guest here on, on my notes in front of me um, yeah I'm going to give this one a 4 out of 5 I think it's great um, yeah I think the animation is fantastic. I think each of the performances is fantastic. Uh, the only thing I'm docking it for is I am not a fan of Percy and I think there's a it's a little bit too much focus on Percy, but that's the way these yeah. sort of arcs are going to go. But it's a really, really good show. I think the twists in it are twisty enough. Yeah. Like that you're... Like, for example, I did not see Cassandra flipping when she... Yeah, flipped. yeah. Yeah. Uh, I did not see her when she did flip for it not to have been that she was under Silas's control for a whole lot of it. She was angry at Percy. Right. Yeah. That like that kind of they kind of work together, I think, in cool ways. Right. Her actual emotional state plus the uh, the magic aspect. Yeah. So it's written well enough for that. It's performed excellently by uh, literally everybody in the cast. Like, there's nobody there I can say that's a dull or boring voice performance. Yeah. And I think the animation is really good. If it wasn't for that, as I said, I'm just not a big fan of Percy. I would definitely give it. In fact, I'm going to give it a 4.5 out of 5. I, I genuinely think it's great. Um, it's an adult cart. It's an adult animation. It's aimed at adults. It's violent. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I can understand a lot of why people would be like it wears thin on people when it's just like oh that guy's swearing they put swearing into it like because they think that's cool i don't think that the the addition of swearing in this is let's make this cool i think it's just that's how yeah. they see the characters would say like i mean it's just about it's just how some people talk like i i swear a lot uh that's just how i talk yeah, <laughs> when i'm not that, when i'm not teaching so you're right and it feels natural and it does like it is sometimes jarring um to hear it because realistically a lot of tv shows and movies have cut swearing out a lot right. like you don't, just it this is on amazon for example um i watched uh chris pratt's show there called the terminal list i think I, I texted you about it he's like he never at one point says that he is vengeance and then he literally says he is vengeance like two episodes <laughs> later um but uh that was remarkable in the fact that it was soldiers coming back from a tour where all of their Navy SEALs were killed and he's a Navy SEAL going after these people. And I don't think he swears once in the entire movie. Like he's hmm. torturing guys. I don't think he goes, tell me what the fucking are or anything like this. Like, right. And it just like, it gets to the point where that just doesn't feel realistic. So yeah, but I understand again also why some people are put off if they see that and they think it's it's too much of an edgy. But I realistically, the people who do 
critical role who are the people who do Vox Machina or the Legend of yeah. Machina are not those kind of people. They, they're, not, they're not trying to shock you by the fact that yeah. Scanlan is having sex. They're not trying to shock you by the fact that Vax is bisexual. That's just the character. That's just right. the way that is. So it's not an attempt at wokeness and then the uh, the swearing and the sex is not an attempt at shock. It's just... Right. It just all feels very natural. It feels yeah. natural. And yeah, so four and a half out of five... Um, and the only reason it's not getting a five is I'm just not a big fan of Percy. So yeah, uh, I'm gonna go ahead and give it a four out of five. I I really like the characters. I really like the world building. I will also say that uh, from a, you know as as we all know on this podcast, one of the things that I bitch about constantly is uh, gender related issues in uh, mm-hmm. media set in fantasy and in the Middle Ages. And you know this is something where we we really don't have that problem, right? I mean, we have uh, within the our kind of main troupe, right? We have three, I think, excellent, really kind of well-developed, well-thought-out female characters who each, I think, have their own, like, interesting, like, emotional arcs, um, uh, you know, which I which is great. Um, I think, you know, we have an excellent woman villain, which is something that I think we, we actually see in some ways even, like, less frequently, a female villain who's actually, like, has depth and nuance to any degree, um so as opposed to just like she hates her because she's pretty and it's like okay great um so you know so i really like that as well um it's definitely something that i'm really excited about seeing more set in this world in terms of the tv show i'm also definitely gonna check out the podcast and uh and you know and listen into that a bit more uh i would say my only kind of docking it to some extent is that like And this is something that I kind of acknowledge is sort of unfair to some extent, which is that like, it is still right a a series that is put together by like a group of white people. um, And that therefore like then like centers on like what are essentially like white people and therefore it has like a predominantly like white fantasy universe with like people of color playing very much kind of like side roles. And as I said, I recognize that that's unfair in the sense that like this group of like seven people who are friends um, you know, have the backgrounds that they have, right? And, like, I obviously don't, like, fault them for, like, you know, you know, for having that and for, like, that being, like, where this series came from. Uh, but I do think that especially in, like, the context that we have in the 21st century of, like, for me at least really wanting more media, which has some amount of kind of thoughtfulness around uh, diversity and like the real diversity of the medieval world and the ways in which like a fantasy series in particular like can be in particular diverse because like it's not real so who gives a shit um i think especially like given all of that in like our current context of like white nationalism being on the rise in the united states um you know that's that's something that i feel like i kind of noticed uh, a lack of to some extent or a kind of like marginalization of um but i also kind of acknowledge that in this like particular situation it's not an entirely fair complaint um but but i'm gonna still go ahead and you know give it give it a four out of five um it basically in like knocking basically a half point on diversity and a half point on the like uh unrealistic un- unreal un- lack of realism of conquest <laughs> Yeah, no, I totally understand exactly what you're saying, Sarah. Yeah, it makes yeah. perfect sense. And I get why you would take off a, a mark for that. And I don't even think of that as taking off a mark. It's something that it didn't hit for you. So yeah. it doesn't get the mark in the first place. So yeah, four yeah. to five sounds yeah. like a good strong. So I, and I think between the, the two of us, 
that's the uh, the highest average mark we've given in a in a long time. Um, yeah, other. I mean, other than like Wheel of Time. Um... No, Wheel of Wheel of Time. In the end, we uh, definitely got lower than an average of that. So that would be an average of eight out of ten. We definitely. Well, the Wheel of Time, the books. I mean. Oh, sorry, the books. When we well, covered the books. Yeah. I, I think I think we. I think I, I think I gave it a five. I know yeah, you gave I it. I know you gave it a five. Yeah, I would have given it a six, except I'd given that to uh, Thirteen Warriors. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, yeah, but yeah, so this is definitely one of the, one of our higher ratings, and yeah, and I definitely, I definitely recommend this. I think it's worth a watch. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. So, Ollie, are there places where the listeners could find you on the internet? No. Uh, I keep saying this. That's not true. And I think people think I'm joking, but you cannot find me on the internet, and I don't want you, I'm joking. If you happen to come across me, you come across me, that's fine. Um, speaking of... Uh, since I've, I've made it so that you can't search me on Facebook, at least I don't think you can, and you definitely can't ask me for a friend request. But recently, a listener, dear listener out there, um, and I only know them through the Facebook group, so I know they're a listener through the Facebook group, sent me, uh, or, or is it followed me on Instagram? I don't know how you describe it on Instagram. Yeah, um, followed you on I have Instagram. a blank Instagram, which I don't follow anybody, and I've got like, <laughs> 40 followers on there but mm. i uh, i honestly have no idea how anybody would find me on instagram <laughs> it's a blank instagram it's maybe they heard blank. you joking about your blank instagram instagram on this podcast and decided it would be funny to follow your blank instagram I th- well it is funny anybody who's listening go for it like but i think but i might yeah, follow I just, your i think i might follow your blank instagram you do follow me yeah and it's just there it's blank it will never have anything on it and I just like the idea that every now and then numbers go up. But I was like, isn't that... I'm going to start just like tagging you and things on Instagram. <laughs> no, please don't. No, no Instagram followers. Just but, like um, random you things. There, but you can, if you listen to Judging Book Covers, I'm a, I'm a permanent guest host on that um, whenever we, we're recording again. Uh, and you can find me on old episodes of uh, this podcast, Media Evil. Um, yes. Best acquaintances might still be out there. So if you want to go find the episode where I talk to Sarah, it's a, or myself and, and Emily talk to Sarah, uh, yeah, you can find us there. So yeah, every yeah. now and then you'll see me just doing podcasts. I'll pop up and, and talk about stuff. What should be coming out soon, uh, Sarah, is our episode of On Brick. Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> Yeah, so if you look, if you uh, check out Knives Out Minute, the podcast Knives Out Minute, there are a series of, there at least were recorded, and I guess are now being released, uh, a series of bonus episodes on uh, other Ryan Johnson films. So you can hear uh, us and, was it Megan? It was Megan. Who else was it? We did this ages ago. Yeah, it was me, yourself, Megan Griffin, (laughs) and Amber Stewart. And uh, and we uh, talk about Brick, which is a beloved male movie uh, for most people. Um, I am not a massive fan of it. I enjoy it, but I'm not a huge fan of it. And uh, it, I think it's an interesting take. So unless Darren yeah. has edited the hell out of it, um, I think you'll find it, it's not your usual take on the movie Brick. So any if you listen yeah. to any other podcast on Brick, it's just like, tons of people talk about how wonderful it was and how similar it was. And this is just four people talking about 
this is a, a decent movie, but like it's not worrying any of us. So yeah, listen to Yeah, it's definitely one of those movies that I feel like I realized I liked more when I first saw it when I was in college uh, than I did on this particular rewatch as an adult. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, that was a fun episode, which I am pretty sure we recorded uh, approaching one year ago. Sarah, where can people find you on the internet? Well, you can find me on this podcast, to which you should subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app. You should also rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. And I actually have a uh, new five-star review to share with us from, uh, in fact, former guest Tracy Tanoff, who writes that it is a great podcast for both listeners and guests. Uh, and writes, full disclosure, I have guested on the show twice, Outlaw King and Six the Musical, and had an excellent time, but that has in no way impacted my review of the show. I was a listener long before I was a guest and can say wholeheartedly that Media Evil is a great show either way, and come on, what a great pun in the title. Dr. Decker knows her subject inside and out, and it's a great listen, both when the pop culture is on the laughably wrong side, i.e. Braveheart, and when the piece actually tries. I particularly appreciate her views as a Jewish woman looking at these pieces of pop culture, which often erase marginalized identities and glorify a white male Eurocentric viewpoint. We need more voices like these critiquing period dramas, and I am so happy Dr. Decker continues to make her voice and the voice of her excellent colleagues and guests heard. So thank you so much to Tracy for that review. Oh, what's this? P.S. Ollie is my favorite. That's right. Like, P.S. We really need the perspective too. of a white man sometimes on this podcast. So it's cool that <laughs> so, Ollie keeps coming back. I come back because, as we all know, there's not enough white male voices on the internet talking about movies. As you know. Oh, by the way, um, also Vox Machina uh, totally passes the If Decker test. Yes, it does. Vox Machina passes the If Decker test with flying colors. We have, I, I mean, you know, because we even have more female characters, like in terms of like people on the council and whatnot. But we have, uh, you know, three members of Vox Machina themselves who all survive. Cassandra survives. Uh, you know, so yeah, easily passes the If Decker test. Oh, does it pass the Bechtel test? It does. It does? Yeah, because there's loads of conversations between uh, the female characters. There's certainly exchanges. I I feel like... That aren't discussing men. Yeah, and I was going to say, like, I'm pretty sure there are. I can't can't remember specifically, and it's been a little while since I watched the show, but... I mean, I feel like they certainly... Yeah, I feel like all of the characters interact with one another, and I feel like, except for... I mean, I feel like, actually, yeah, none of them really talk about men when they're talking. No, that's the thing. No. It's like th- there, there are men there, but like there's definitely at least one I'm, I'm picturing in my head because it's a really sweet moment when um, Pike returns and herself and Keelit yeah. are both just gearing each other up by, oh my God, you did so well. You did. So- I can't believe you can do all of this. I can't believe you healed this tree. Like, yeah, yeah. And, and it was the tree that brought me back. Like that's, so that's just, you know, two female characters yeah. empowering each other. Um, yeah, which is awesome. Yeah. But yeah, so yes, yeah, so you should also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod. You should join our Facebook group. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram, where I do not have a blank page. I have a real Instagram at Sarah F. Decker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd also love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So thank you, Ollie, for guesting for uh, this was three hours of recording. Um, it's, a, it's a long recording. Uh, three hours. And it was like, 
45 minutes beforehand where we were just chatting yeah. about Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit <sighs> movies. Hobbit movies are bad, guys. One day I'm going to have to cover the Hobbit movies and just, like, wreck them. But then I, I have to actually watch the third one. I will guest on one of those. Oh, it's going to be a combined episode. I refuse to do three episodes. I will not guest on that episode. <laughs> So thank you, Ollie, for coming on this episode, even if you will not guest on the Hobbit episode in the future. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye.